when he comes back and is like, I'm queer now, he cut his hair. So I was all in. <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Luke Ruddick, an old friend of mine who is one of the moderators of the Cerebro Fan Discord and recently started a fun new project on Twitter called Danger Rooms and Dragons, where he is building all of the X-Men in 5th edition D&D in very inventive ways. I've been enjoying it very much. Luke, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm vaccinated, finally. Finally. Yes. Luke's in Iceland, so it's been a it's been a long haul. Slow rollout, like I say, but we're finally getting there. We're getting some good weather. I'm ready to finally stop being a hermit and living entirely in my apartment. I'll tell you, it is weird to get back out there. I'm out in LA right now and it is it's just wild to like be at a bar. I can with only your imagine. <laughs> <laughs> It's also wild here in my Airbnb where the only place that the wireless really works is the Wi-Fi on the patio. So I've been recording outside. So the sound quality this month, if it's not perfect, listeners, like there's a, that was just a raven or something just like, you know, cawing overhead. So picture it. I'm sitting under a bougainvillea. It's lovely, but there's a lot going on. It's got some very Krakoan vibes from what I can see. You've got like nice foliage. I'm covered in these pink flower petals because the bougainvillea is um, shedding, I guess. <laughs> but uh, we are here today to talk about Shatterstar, Gavidra 7, the first bisexual character of Pride Month. He has had, obviously, a very long and complicated and winding road to being that. He's also just had a long and winding and twisted and messed up road in general in terms of his character story his history, all of the retcons, Benjamin Russell. It's a particularly gnarled character history. I would say it's not quite as bad as Monet, but like certainly... He's the runner-up in the compilated backstory patches. Yeah, kind of up there for sure. He's a lovely second alternate. Mm-hmm. So before we dig into the warrior of the Mojoverse, I would love to hear a bit about your origin story with the X-Men, how you got into this world and these characters, what your whole deal is with this franchise. I should preface that this might get a little deep and personal. That's what this podcast is for. So somewhat of a trigger warning, I guess, for the joys of being a gay teenager. Mm -hmm. I think I've always had an interest in fantasy and science fiction. One of my earliest memories of reading was uh, The Hobbit and just all that vivid imagery. So I was already inclined towards sci-fi and fantasy. Like a lot of people, I first got into it with the 90s cartoon, mm -hmm. which was very highly publicized when it came to the UK which is where I grew up. They got it on Sky One, which was cable at the time, and we were a little too poor for cable. So I knew of it, but I only really got to see it if I was over at someone else's house to check out one of the episodes. Right. 
so that was my introduction, but I really only saw, I think, the first half of the pilots and then one random episode. So my experience of the X-Men at first was just like, I love them. They're amazing. Storm is incredible. Rogue kicks ass. I have no clue what is going on. But then um, my father, he's always been a collector of comic books. He's a very avid 2000 AD fan. Mm-hmm. He loves Judge Dredd to the point that one Halloween he actually made a homemade Judge Dredd costume. Oh, wow. Actually, like, welded and put together the shoulder pad and the helmets. That's very cool. It That's is. a complicated costume. It is. He didn't do the best job because um, he didn't finish <laughs> the edges and wound up cutting himself quite a bit severely throughout the night. Oh, no. So one Christmas when I was with him, he went to a comic store looking for back issues of 2080 to fill out his collection. And I was tagging along, I think it was about eight or nine. And I was like, can I get a comic? Can I get a comic? Can I be like you? And um, he said, yes. And I immediately ran to the racks and found two issues of X-Men. And they were polybagged. They came with uh, trading cards. So that was extra exciting. And of all the entry points into the X-Men franchise, reading it, I picked up X-Men 14 and 15, which is uh, parts 3 and 7 of Executioner's Song. So it was another very confusing... Confusing, right, because that is a serialized story that just runs from chapter to chapter through all the various books. It's sort of like um, Ten of Swords was recently. Yeah. one of those. It went across, I think, X-Factor, X-Force, Uncanny, and Adjectiveless. Yeah, it was all four titles at the time, besides Excalibur. Yeah, pretty much. And, like, one issue introduces like the entire cast of Uncanny and X-Men and X-Factor and X-Force. And then the other issue was uh, the infamous baby food incident. Ah, yes. yes. If you'd like to know more, go see the Strife episode with Anthony Oliveira, where we uh, dig into that one. An excellent episode. Thank you, darling. It's mm-hmm. a moment. It is a moment in time. It is truly a moment. And I just remember opening it and once again, having no clue what's going on. But you flip through it and it has these big, amazing spreads with like the teams fully assembled. And you've got like Polaris in her 90s outfit with the giant voluminous hair. You've got Strong Guy looking huge in the background, Iceman, all these amazing visuals that are just instantly kind of captivating. And I think from that point, I was just hooked. So I started trying to figure out what was going on, started trying to find the other parts of Executioner's Song, which probably wasn't the best idea for an entry point. (laughs) I think it was an entry point for so many people, though. I mean, it was the first big, if you're for people our age, people in their 30s now, the vibe is sort of, you came in with the cartoon or the Konami arcade game that was based on Pride of the X-Men or with somewhere around Executioner's Song, like right after Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and all those people left the book, and then it was sort of the Niciesa, Lobdell era. Exactly, and it was kind of the first big event that ran alongside the cartoon airing, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so, because it was, exactly. So it was um, very much a, it was very much a watershed moment, and after that they just kind of, hit the ground running. I mean, it went sort of from there and then you get a stretch of time and then you're in the age of apocalypse. And I think that's the other big jump on for a lot people, maybe a couple years younger than me. Like yeah. that was another one that people really jumped into with both feet. 
that was actually my sec, well, I guess third entry point as I started collecting because I started subscribing to Essential X-Men, which was the UK reprints. Yeah, because UK, it's hard to get American comics, or it was. I think it's a lot better now, thanks to places like Forbidden Planet. Right, and also you have, you know, now you can do it in digital yes. also, which is helpful. And Essential X-Men, it would basically collect um, an issue of Uncanny, an issue of Adjectiveless, and then one extra each month. And so that was a great way to catch up on things. And that launched straight into the Age of Apocalypse when I first started subscribing. But again, it's a very big event. It's very memorable. And it just had me hooked. I mean, it was four issues on every book in the line. Yeah. The way that they marketed it also was as though this was the new status quo. Yeah. Which when we were kids seemed plausible to us like it yeah <laughs> like, like if we'd been a little older we would have been like there's no way this is gonna stick but we were like oh my god they've changed every you know like <laughs> and it seemed like something we really needed to pay attention to exactly and it just blew my tiny little mind at the time yeah just seeing those new designs and that joe Maggiera art so it was just uh enthralling I kind of stayed with the series and then it started to take on a new resonance for me because I was getting to the point where I realized that I was gay, mm -hmm. which obviously there's a lot to be said about the mutant minority metaphor and queer sexuality. Yeah, that's half this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, my experience with realizing that I was gay was not particularly great. Uh, I already don't come from the best background. Um, I'm not in contact with my parents currently. I've suffered some things that um, people shouldn't have to. Mm -hmm. And then I was outed against my will whilst attending an all-boys private school in England. And uh, it was a fairly conservative area. And let's just say I think that well. Right. Yeah, I mean, I had that experience... Also, but I was at a public school where the principal and several teachers were gay. So it was a different, I would say as difficult as I found it, it was a very different environment from the one that I know you were in. Yeah, I mean, it's never easy for anyone, I would say. And I don't want to get into like comparisons. No, but I would say you had it worse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would agree because the atmosphere quickly got very violent it got very oppressive mm -hmm. i distinctly remember and again sorry if this is getting too deep stop apologizing this is a <laughs> podcast where you get to talk about your obsession with the x-men and for most of us i think who have some kind of obsession with the x-men it is connected to some kind of childhood trauma because that's what half the x-men comic is about you know what i mean oh definitely but you know the experience of difference the experience of being hated and feared like all of that stuff yeah you know i just distinctly remember when i was in high school there was um a bombing that happened in London at a fairly famous gay bar. Someone had set up a nail bomb, yeah. basically, and it made headlines, it made the news. It was a very disturbing and tragic event. If you want to look it up for the listeners, it was called the Admiral Duncan. Yeah. It's a pretty famous event in gay history. It's still there now, but yeah. this was in 1999 when that happened. Yeah. And um, I remember this boy who I'd been friends with for almost four years brought it up whilst we were in class and just said to our teacher, like, Sir, did you hear about the bombing in London? I wish Luke had been there, because then he'd be dead. And I was just sitting there like, okay, we're, we're friends, and you just said that. 
And the teacher just um, did nothing. Mm -hmm. He actually punished me when I told him to fuck off. Like I responded to this person telling me that they wished I died right. by telling him to go fuck himself. And I got in trouble for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is still the era of Section 28. Yes, which um, it was a particularly malicious law instituted by Margaret Thatcher ran from 1988 to 2003 in England, so 15 years. For people who don't know, Section 28 prohibited the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. And it did that in a way where it was incredibly nebulously worded. So that people would be afraid to try anything. So schools would be afraid to support gay students because Section 28 crackdown could happen at any moment because the law was so poorly defined. Right. Because if you word a law nebulously, people can look for any loophole to Mm -hmm. enforce anything they want. And so a lot of uh, student support groups had to close down or limit their activities. A lot of reading material got banned. And looking back, for me, when I was in school and experiencing this homophobic bullying, I still can't say which teachers didn't stick up for me because they didn't care and which teachers didn't stick up for me because they were afraid of losing their job. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, that's a mindfuck. Yeah, extremely. But it definitely um, it put the X-Men stories in a new light for me because I was reading these stories. And at the time, the late 90s stuff, a lot of it was about you know Operation Zero Tolerance There was a lot that was keyed into um, the public perception of mutants and how they treat people and new laws trying to be passed, senators and Braden Creed and what have you. Mm -hmm. And so it was very easy for me at this young, impressionable age to look at that and say, these are my people. Right. This is very similar to what I'm going through. I can see why a lot of these characters are pissed off or sad or angry. And I think from that, that's where my deep love of the franchise developed from. And it's never left my heart since. It was there for me in a very trying time. And it's earned my love, I'd say. I always think of the X-Men as closely associated with Section 28 sort of retroactively because the celebrity who took the boldest stance against Section 28 in England was Was Ian McKellen, McKellen, who came out publicly in 1988 to protest the passage of the bill, you know, had been known glass closet to be gay for a long time, but it was certainly a shock to middle America is not the right word to middle England, I guess, (laughs) to the general public. He was the highest profile actor in either the UK or the US at that point to come out as gay. And it was a pretty big moment. And so when he was cast as Magneto, that connection, I think, is very much there. You know, we can talk about the Fox X-Men movies and we can talk about Brian Singer and all kinds of reasons Ugh. why I wouldn't exactly call them a victory for gay rights. However, I do think that the X-Men being how Ian McKellen became really famous to Americans is interesting Incredibly to me. Appropriate. Yeah, yeah, you know. And of course, Gandalf helped around the same time. But, the, <laughs> but I think that um, there was something really... Resonance. Resonant and the way and like he played Magneto gay is the thing. You know, like he Definitely. made no effort to to butch up to play that character. And for me, it sort of has forever colored my perception of Magneto. And 
obviously, when you go back to the comics, I mean, I don't think Claremont necessarily intended it to read this way. He always does with the women, with the men, I'm never 100% sure. <laughs> but the relationship between Charles and Eric always feels very, very charged. Yes. I think that McKellen just brought that out, and Stewart embraced it and went with it, and it sort of is the subtext, I think, to those movies in a way that the comic by that point wasn't quite doing as much. Yeah. So that's interesting and fun and cool. And it's unfortunate that it came out of something so negative, but you know, like that's, that's life, right? Yeah. That's pride. Most of the trailblazing declarations of sexuality have been, I needed to stand up and speak out because of legislation or because of a hate crime or because of what have you. So, you know, that is just kind of our way. And it is also notably what happens with the X-Men. I mean, Steve Fox and I talked about this on the North Star episode uh, recently. North Star comes out because he feels the need to make a statement about AIDS. That's just very real. It's, you know, that is how celebrities did that back then. It's wild to, I mean, we just had uh, literally yesterday, an NFL football player came out as gay. Uh, I've already forgotten. I think his name is Carl. I've already forgotten. I'm not a football person. No. It was a very casual thing, though. It was like an Instagram story. We're seeing that more and more. Yeah. I think that we're also starting to see that in comic books to some extent. Like, Loa can just talk about how she thinks maybe she's bi. Yeah. And it just is something that can happen on panel. Loa doesn't need to have an issue where she's like, I am bisexual, like, you know, phasing through some matter and destroying it with her power. But on the other hand, we still have a very, very long way to go. (laughs) And I think... Yes. The journey of Richter and Shatterstar is definitely a test case, I think, for how complicated that can be. Oh, 100%. Why did you want to talk about Shatter? I mean, so first, I will say, the character Luke has wanted to talk about from the minute I said I was doing this podcast (laughs) is Quicksilver. And I told Luke, I have a policy that until... Wanda and Pietro are mutants again, or at the very least are Magneto's children again. Like they can be high evolutionary experiments if they want, but they have to be his kids. I am not doing an episode until at the very least that family is restored, right? So as a consolation, I was like, you can do literally whoever else you want. Who would you like to do? And you mentioned Chatterstar. So talk to me about Gavidra 7. Yeah, um... I mean, who doesn't love a hot ginger, for starters? You know I love a ginger. So that's, it's going to be, this happens to me with the male characters, really, where I'm just like, I don't have a ton of opinions, but I do find him very sexy. Not when he debuted, like, because you know this about me. I don't like long hair on men, particularly, like, at all. I'm not into, like, the Fabio look. It's just not for me. So when he debuted, listeners, if you're not familiar with, like, Liefeld. X-Force of the 90s, Shatterstar's hair, when he first appeared, he basically has like an aggressive curled perm standing sort of straight up. It's like a very weird... Yeah, he has the perm. He also has a ponytail, a high pony, like Ariana Grande style coming out the back, and then has two braids coming down the front like Pippi Longstocking. Yeah. It's a lot of look. It's a lot of look. And it's a lot of look. I do want to say for the listeners who haven't, aren't familiar with Leifeld, I love that for you. 
honestly, until he came back in Peter David's X Factor, to me, Shatterstar was just kind of this ridiculous Liefeld character who I didn't find attractive, even though I love a ginge, mostly because the hair situation was so wild. It's like Swiss Miss meets Ariana Grande meets... You know what the hair texture looks like? It's like when... Remember when Justin Timberlake... Oh, God. Had that, like, ramen noodle perm thing going on? Yeah, that just looked like it would crunch if you touched it. Yep, that's exactly what it looks like. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because it's true. That is... It was (laughs) disgusting. And the ironic thing is, the moment he debuts, everyone just calls him pretty boy. Right. And you're kind of looking at these issues, holding up the arts, and just seeing everyone say, he's this MTV pretty boy... And you're just like, where? Where? I don't I don't see it. He looks like a total freakazoid. And he has, uh, you know, he has the sexy star tattoo over his eye. He obviously has a great body because all Liefeld men, whether the anatomy is precise or not, are absolutely jacked, right? I mean, this is why yeah. Tony Oliveira said that, you know, it seems Liefeld was cursed by a witch to never create a heterosexual <laughs> character because his sensibility is so homoerotic by virtue of the way he draws these men that it's only natural for these characters as they evolve to become gay characters. Yeah, I want to say on that point, I think even just not characters he creates, but any character he touches. Right, because Victor, he didn't create. Right. And then, you know, you've got Cannonball and Sunspot who haven't been confirmed, but the fandom is just like, yeah, they're they're boyfriends. Yeah, I mean, that sort of starts under Lightheld, this sort of like tension between them. And then it kicks into gear later on when they have that love triangle with Tabby. Yeah. There's just something gay about X-Force. Like, there just is. Definitely. And then there's Feral. Yes. And Feral, we now know, is gay or bi or something. We don't know what exactly what her deal is. Who had a relationship with Tempo. In the Age of X, yes. Yes. And Tempo is another Liefeld creation who is... Yes, who came very close to being on X-Force. Yes. It's, It's almost a conspiracy. And, like, Cable has... Cable and Strife are the... That's what... Tony and I were talking about, but Shatterstar was an interesting one because yeah. Liefeld was very upset when Peter David Ugh. established that Shatterstar and Richter were a romantic pairing. Mr. Liefeld, if you're listening, I would hope maybe you've changed your mind on this. It has been a decade and change, but I remember being pretty upset with an interview he gave where he said he couldn't wait to undo it. Yes. And the Shatterstar couldn't be gay because he was a warrior, a Spartan. That was funny, right? Because, of course, Spartan warriors are incredibly indulged in a lot of male-male sex in ancient times. So he can't be gay because he's a warrior? Like the Spartans? A Greek warrior? Got some news for you. But, you know, it's one of those things where he dropped off that book after 12 issues, right? I mean, he was on New Mutants before that, but he only does 12 issues of X-Force the first year. And then Nisiesa, who took over and who had been working with him before that, but who fully took over as writer, starts establishing Shatterstar as queer pretty much immediately. Oh, definitely. And also does a lot of the heavy work with establishing him as a character. Yeah. Because prior to that... He just fights. He's just like a fighty guy, you know? Like, there's no particular depth to the character. No. The reason I wanted to talk about Shatterstar today... He's a very resonant character for me for a lot of reasons, and I feel like I'm probably just going to list them all. For starters, I'm going to dispute the art thing, 
because when he's drawn by Adam Polina mm-hmm. during the um, low bearing. Yeah, he's hot in that. I just, you know, it's just, again, the, pony, the, hair, the high I pony know. is just not for me. But he definitely is a lot sexier during the whole Benjamin Russell period, which we'll get to. Yes. <laughs> and like Polina has this very kind of romantic style to him where the faces are a lot more emotive than I think the audience was used to in that mm-hmm. kind of 90s period. That's part of why everybody loves The Road Trip. It feels like a New Mutants book again, to me. Yeah. It has that sort of, we're friends, we have romantic relationships, we've got feelings. It's not just, Gah! which is why I could never get into X-Force. Like, it was always very action figures smacking together, which is like my yeah. least favorite kind of X-Book, personally. And he also does these brilliant moments where you'll get an emotional moment and you'll suddenly get like a stained glass window behind the characters or like um, intricate designs just to show off the emotion of the moments. So I think the moment that hooked me on Shatterstar is, um, I think it's the first Loeb issue where Richter announces he's leaving the team mm-hmm. and Shatterstar straight up does a forward somersault to put himself in front of Richter. You can't, right. Yes, you can't. You can't leave me. What am I supposed to do without you? And the way Polina draws that reaction, it's got this kind of dramatic background with speed lines to show how hard this is hitting him. And his face is utterly heartbreaking because he's just devastated by the idea that Richter is leaving and that he has to make it on his own and let his friend go and take care of his personal business. And I think the moment I saw that, because it was in the Central X-Men at one point to show Sam joining the X-Men. Right, because Loeb writes out Cannonball and Richter immediately. He has Richter go back to Mexico to deal with his family's crime syndicate, and he has Cannonball graduate to the X-Men. Yes. And I remember just looking at that and seeing those few panels and just being like, oh, this, um, this is interesting. I'm intrigued. <laughs> and then from there, I tracked down like my local comic book store and started finding back issues of X-Force and just like these little puzzle pieces of Shadowstar. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to the subtext back then. Like there's a moment where he and Siren are trading together and it likens how they're so shattered by members leaving the team. And it's like Siren misses Warpath. Shatterstar misses Richter. It's like, okay, Warpath and Siren were making out. Are fucking, it. right, yeah. Yes. So, like, there's a parallelism there's a direct, being drawn. Yes. I was very wild by the Polina arts and just became fascinated by Shadowstar through that. And I think he's an incredibly versatile character. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> Although, you know, let's face it. Although, yeah, but continue. Yeah. But um, I think he's really well suited for comedic beats. He's really well suited for action beats and for like emotional stuff because I'm an avid listener of the podcast. I kind of think back to how you guys discussed Nightcrawler. Yeah, back in episode two. Yes. And how he kind of fits in so many different team setups and in so many different stories. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with Shadowstar, you get that same kind of range for his generation. Yeah, like when he pops up in X Factor, it feels organic. When he is in New Mutants Dead Souls, it feels organic. He's just popped up in Excalibur. If he ends up sticking around, Jordan White said he's not joining the team right now, but I always think that's an interesting phrasing, right? So, Definitely. you know, we'll see what happens there. But if he does end up 
with that crew, I feel like that will be very organic. It helps whenever Richter is there because they are yes. sort of, whether or not they're together. And I actually sort of like when they're not. I think they've become interesting as people who obviously love each other very much, but like are not necessarily romantically compatible. And so the way that that is difficult for them, I think is interesting. Definitely. But when the two of them are together, it's just very dynamic. Yeah. You know, we just saw in the most recent issue of Excalibur at the gala, that tension that I'm talking about, where like Richter, Richter feels like Shatterstar is always abandoning him. And Shatterstar feels like Richter is always like... Closed off. Too depressed and reserved to be emotionally available. And I liked how that issue ended with them sort of being like, all right, you want to hear about where I've been? I want to hear about where you've been. Like, what happened in the Mojo world? I'll tell you what happened in other worlds. We'll like, you know. And I think that it's a good beat for Richter because he has just been through this whole unrequited love with apocalypse thing that's very clear and that was, I thought, fascinating. Definitely. And I think that we've now seen Richter be pretty miserable since Ten of Swords when Apocalypse went back home with his wife, now I think is the right time to bring those two characters back together. We have Shatterstar coming out of the plot in Leah Williams' X Factor, where he slew the Morrigan, and God only knows what ramifications that will have for him. But also, he's just been through a very traumatic return to the Mojoverse. So it's sort of a a little bit of a resetting of the character because I think that there was a minute there where they weren't quite sure what to do with Shatterstar. No. And it seems like they're bringing him back to basics of like, he's the barbarian warrior with long hair from the alternate world, you know? Yes. And I think that makes sense, much like resetting Rain, much like resetting Cypher, certain characters who had been pushed off in odd directions. And I didn't mind the direction Shatterstar had gone in, but I think it does make sense. If we're in this new era where we're bringing all the fans back in who had dropped off, it makes sense to, within reason, I think, restore characters to their most recognizable form a lot of the time. And I think that's what's being done here. That's how it felt in X Factor anyway. And we've only had the one Excalibur issue, but it seems to me like it it incorporates the characterization from X Factor Investigations onward, but feels very of a piece with the 90s character. Yeah, I definitely agree. It feels like an excellent summation of him. And it's a great way to kind of bring him back in without providing like five pages of cliff notes. Right, exactly. And like, we never need to talk about Benjamin Russell again. We never need, you know, there's just like lots of things we don't need to worry about. Yes. I am desperate for the Dazzler Shatterstar of it all, which was teased in that issue nine of X Factor and which I hope will be explored somewhere else. Me too. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you will know that Shatterstar turns out to be the time-displaced child of Longshot and Dazzler, which is a really complicated storyline that we will get into in the Cerebro character file because it's actually set up in 1992 and then dropped for this other plot, which is the Benjamin Russell plot, which Jeff Loeb does, which is enormously confusing, and then comes back around in Peter David X Factor. It's a retcon. So we'll get to that. So yeah, yeah. it's retcon upon retcon upon retcon. But in the meanwhile, I don't I don't want us to go down that path just yet, because you were talking about all the reasons that Shatterstar resonates with you as a character. And yeah. I want to continue that. Part of it is that he can be in any story. Part of it is that um it's very kind of 
rewarding as a reader to have followed Shatterstar's story and get to the point where he can say on the page, I'm in love with Richter, mm-hmm. where he can trade that kiss that caused, uh, you know, a lot of press. A lot of press, a lot of drama, recriminations from his creator, yada, yada, yada. It was a big yes. deal. It was. And it got uh, Peter David B. Glad Award, which, um, no comment. I, I mean, I get it. I get it. Yeah, I get it. The Peter David of it all aside, I do think that was an important moment in comic books for gay representation. Yes. So, and I feel like know. we'll get into the um, meat of that conversation a little later. I think as a Quicksilver fan with Romani Heritage, you have a lot of feelings about oh, Peter David. Yes. That's my... Yes. Um, <laughs> That's my yes, that's my understanding of your uh, of your take on that. Yeah, so we'll get to that perhaps when we get to that. I'm going to try and be as the Icelandic like to say diplo, short for diplomatic. I was going to say like the DJ. No, sadly not like the DJ. So I like that there's been this journey that we've gotten this kind of success. I love that he's a fighter because I think um, one thing for me growing up looking for gay representation mm-hmm. in media. You know, we're kind of all the same age. So I think you know as well as I do what it was like trying to find gay characters on television right. in the 90s who were satisfying. Yeah, there were none. <laughs> no, it was a lot of, I'm gay, but that doesn't define me. Well, you had two options. And I always think of it as the Will and Grace thing, which is like the main character, Will, was played by a straight actor and was gay, but not gay like that. He's normal. And then Jack, who was the other gay character on that show, was the wacky gay actually played by a gay actor, played very femme. Yeah. We were still kind of in a world of like Paul Lind characters insofar as gay people existed in media. And so I agree. The idea of like a sacred band of Thebes type character who is a homoerotic warrior was very appealing. I similarly loved Greg Rucka's character, Tommy Jagger from Checkmate, which was a very yes. short-lived DC book. Another, Another sexy ass-kicking gay ginger. And Tommy was the son of Judo Master, who's a pretty embarrassing golden age superhero who's a white man <laughs> who does judo. Yeah. One of the things I found charming about Tommy was that he refused to use the code name Judo Master because he's like this white ginger and found it weird. But he also was just this like tough as nails, hot, masculine guy. And there's nothing wrong with a character being feminine, but it was a moment in time where there were no masculine gay characters no. in our media. Yeah, it was also it was so hard to find gay characters in genre in like Period. science yeah. fiction. Yeah. So it was like, I don't mind feminine gay characters. I think that's important representation. Listen, you can hear me talking on this podcast. I mean, I'm not, by no means, she would protest a little too much if I was (laughs) saying I have a problem with feminine gay men. I'm just saying it was refreshing, I agree, at the time. Yeah. I wanted gay men with laser pistols. I wanted gay men with swords. I wanted gay men with telekinesis. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to be gay and kicking ass or gay and the best pilot in the galaxy. Right. Like we wanted gay Han Solo. We wanted gay yes. James Bond. We wanted stuff like that. And there wasn't any of it, you know? No. So like for me, it was um, Jack on Dawson's Creek, which was mm. um, very tame. Like, I think they did some good work. They got the first, I think, network gay kiss. <laughs> Keep going. I'm just doing this song. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But otherwise, he was just listening. One was six months, one was three. 
in the water. Otherwise, he was just very tame. Out of the way. I'm sorry. Continue. I'm sorry. I, I love a Paula Cole moment. Oh, me too. Where have all the cowboys gone? Where we needed in gay cowboys. Need. We did. And then we got them and then it became a joke, unfortunately. But, oh, you know. Yes. <sighs> but, you know, he had lots of speeches about how, like, just because I'm gay doesn't mean I have to, like, you know, Madonna. Right. You don't define me by that. And it's like, okay, but some of us do like It's Madonna. like, right, but I some love Madonna. Us, so what are you yeah. trying to say? Some of us want to have some fun with our identity. Right. Or alternately, my other option was staying up until three in the morning to catch Queer as Folk on the rerun on cable. Oh, the British one. Not Tame. Yes. No, <laughs> not at all Tame. That's the one where Littlefinger from Game of Thrones eats Charlie Hunnam's ass on camera. And you know what? That's gay rights, is what that yes. is. I did gay not rights. like the American Queer as Folk. No. I found it very... Like, sorry, controversial. Like, you know, for its time, I recognize that it was important. And, like, Sharon Glass is on it, and she's a queen. So there's, like, things Incredible. to recommend it. But I actually, I went to college with her granddaughter. And she was like, oh, my grandma's oh, wow. Sharon Glass. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, from Cagney and Lacey? <laughs> and she was like, people usually say from Queer as Folk. And I was like, <laughs> I was like oh, well, I'm a, I'm a gay with a weird old soul who's stuck in the 80s. The big thing for me with Queer as Folk was it felt to me, and this is this may be unfair, it's just how I felt as a teenager or whatever, but it felt to me like a show that was done, it was sort of written more for a straight audience was how it felt to me. I would agree, especially in comparison to the UK. The UK version. one felt very authentic, but I didn't get to watch that until I was much older, you know? See, I started with the UK and then saw the US and the comparison was like the characters in the UK one got to be flawed. Like Charlie Hunnam, his character is an asshole. Yeah. Because he's a teenager and he's just come out of the closet. Right. It's also like that was part of it for me is like the relationship between those two main characters, the older man and the teenager, is not supposed to be good. Good. It's supposed to be like no. an, it's it's a lot like actually. It's the motif that Steve Fox and I were talking about in the North Star episode where an older man sort of initiates a 17, 18 year old into gay life. And, you know, in the North Star Stories case, it's presented as a positive thing. In Queer as Folk UK, it's definitely presented as a fraught thing. And then the US version, the way they adapted it's it, endgame. it's like an endgame romantic ship that, in a way that I yeah. found very off putting personally. Definitely, I'd agree there. And just the way, like, the characters would go from being flawed and being assholes to giving these grandiose speeches. Yeah. And being role models, it was just a little... Mm. Anyway, this is not a Queerest Folk podcast. Yes, no, sorry. But media... The point is, yeah, we had a real dearth of representation. And it feels... It's interesting. Like, we talk about... I mean, this is also sort of like what Sarah Century and I were talking about on her episode about karma earlier this month, the Pride kickoff. Yes. And Stephanie Burt was so funny. She was like, you've identified like exactly what we are, which is Sarah said, we're camels. If you are a gay person over, let's say, 32, you went through such a drought in your life that you are able to store up the tiniest suggestion of gay content and just like vibe on it for a year. Like we have an ability to do that that was born out of necessity. It's not a good thing. It's like a, no. it's a defense mechanism. But we have developed the ability to do that because we did not have any other option. We had to find it 
where we could. Because like, if the only gay shows are Will and Grace and Queer as Folk and I don't like either of them, then I'm kind of shit out of luck, right? Yeah. That was the world that we were operating in. I mean, comics, there was nothing. North Star is gay in 1992, is not allowed to say the word gay again for a decade until Chuck Austin brings him back as the first gay X-Man. Karma is a lesbian as a joke, but doesn't say the word lesbian until 2003. Had never kissed a girl on panel until... This week in the Marvel's Voices Pride story. God, that is true. Literally never. And by the way, just as a brief side note, I have said on this podcast that I really think Danny and Sean is going somewhere. I could be super wrong. I have been wrong before. Wait until the Cable episode when we find out if Tony and I completely lost our minds during the Strife episode. I like to theorize. (laughs) My hope is that this is... Because like the new character, Galura looks a lot like Danny. I hope that the point is to show us that Sean has a type, maybe? And to possibly bring out something in Yeah, Danny maybe Danny is like, going to react oh. like, oh, now, like, Sean has always been, like, the what Sarah said about the lesbian friend who you can just sort of keep around without committing to anything romantic with her, maybe seeing her try dating someone else will activate Danny. That's my hope. We keep saying that So much of queer representation in comic books, and Shatterstar is a fine example of this, is about creators pushing to do something and needing to get the sign-off from initially editorial, but now really from higher corporate levels. Yeah. With Danny, I just feel like, you know, Disney didn't do the Fox New Mutants movie, but there was already so much press about Danny being gay in the Fox New Mutants movie that I feel like that's an easy character to say, like, it's already done. Like, the public yeah. already thinks of this as a gay character. Let's just go for it. So I'm hopeful, but obviously you never know until you see it on the page. I trust Vita Ayala as a writer, and I try to give queer creators the benefit of the doubt that they are doing everything they can. You know what I mean? So I definitely get that. I am hopeful, too, because I think uh, the women-loving women crowd need their own Richter and Shadowstar. They need that satisfaction. They need their own North Star and Kyle, and I don't even like North Star and Kyle, but you get what I'm saying? Like, they need a panoply of things. Right. There should be a line of women knocking, trying to knock down Karma's door. She's a catch. This is a franchise Chris Claremont turned into the biggest franchise in comics. And Chris Claremont likes a woman giving a meaningful look to another woman. He does. There is no explicable reason why 75% of Chris Claremont invented characters are not bisexual. So hopefully we will get there. Yes. Shatterstar is an interesting case because it's a lot like Iceman, right? Yeah, it's... Because it's a character that other writers had tried to out for a very long time. Nisiesa was writing him as gay. Jeff Loeb, I think, was also writing him as gay. Yeah. Then you have Peter David, who establishes him as bisexual. The thing here that's important to note is all three of those men are straight men who had a lot of power institutionally at Marvel. And it takes someone with clout sometimes, particularly someone who isn't themselves queer, as far as we know, to be the one to pull that trigger in a way that gets approved. Yeah. Because I do think that queer creators have to fight harder for this stuff because it gets perceived from them as like a political statement. Yeah. Whereas Bendis or Peter David doing this, it's like, 
aren't we doing a cool thing that's historic? It's not pushing gayness on people in the way that I think queer creators get pigeonholed or criticized. It gets viewed as outreach instead of agenda. Correct. It becomes allyship. It becomes something that the big two comics companies can pat themselves on the back about rather than something they feel the need to defend. Yeah. So that was just a side note. But Shatterstar is, I think, an interesting case because, yeah, it took a long time. Almost 15 years, I think, or longer. I want to say he's introduced in... 91, 92. He debuts in 1991 in the penultimate issue of New Mutants. It's that last run that Nisiesa was helping Liefeld with. Yeah. That transitions into X-Force after issue 100. He shows up in X-Factor in 2009. Yeah. So it's fully 18 years later. That's a lot. And in the time since, Nisiesa had pushed it, Loeb had really pushed it. And if you weren't around at this time in fandom, listeners, this was the gay ship of ex-fandom in the 90s. It was everywhere. I mean, in addition to Bobby and Gambit, randomly, which was like a huge, huge thing. Or Gambit and Logan. Or Gambit and Logan, it's true. And once the movies came out in the aughts, it became very Scott Logan- focused and, and Iceman yeah. Pyro and all of that. But back in the day when it was just the comics fandom and the nascent internet, the gay stuff you would see was Gambit with either Bobby or Logan and Richter and Shatterstar. People were obsessed. Then there was like the Eric and Charles contingent, but you know, they're older. It was like a specific fandom, you know, but like Richter and Shatterstar were everywhere. Fan art, fan fiction. It was a huge, huge thing. And I believe Peter David did it because fans asked him. About it. I think that checks out. Yeah, I, I think did like look up at some a of con, on it. people were like, "Are you ever going to let Richter and Shatterstar be together the way that they were implied to be in the '90s?" And he was like, "Huh," and like went back and looked at it, and then was like, "Yeah, I think I'll do that." Yeah, and he initially kind of tests the waters by having a joke about it earlier in the run, mm-hmm. where um, Madrox asks Richter about Shatterstar, and yes. Richter just does a spit take. Right. Isn't that in the context of like Madrox making sort of jokes about his own dupe sexuality, I think? Yeah, I think Richter makes a joke about Madrox fooling around with himself. With his own dupes. Yeah, which leads to Madrox doing the spectate. Right. And then they flip it. And then he's like, well, you know, how close were you in Shatterstar or something? And there's like a, a laugh moment. And then quite some time later. 45. 45. He shows up. He's been brainwashed by Cortex. Don't worry about it. Definitely don't worry about it. He manages to break free from the brainwashing, and he and Richter are just overcome and start making out. Yeah. I gotta say, I liked it a lot at the time. As did I. I thanked Peter David for it at a con that year. I was really happy about that, even though I wasn't crazy about that book. It felt like a victory because we had spent so many years saying, in the same way that Iceman felt like a victory, we had spent so many years saying this character is gay or bi or something. This character wants to have sex with this man or with men generally. Why is this not? Like, please let this happen to finally have it happen. You know, 2009, I am 21 years old. I had spent my whole life waiting for something like this. Yeah. It's the first kiss between two superheroes in a Marvel comic that's male-male. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. 
It's crazy given that North Star had come out 17 years prior. Yeah. And like he and Hector of the Pantheon never even get to smooch. You know, like it's wild. No. Hector of the Pantheon, also a Peter David character. I will say, like, yes. I have my problems with Peter David, and I don't think he always writes gay characters particularly well, but he certainly has always no. tried to push the envelope on that. So why else do you love Shatterstar? Give me the things that, that you relate to. Um, I think... Unless we've covered it, in which case we'll move on. Oh, no, um, I think there's still more. Um, I think, and this is getting personal and deep again, as someone who comes from a bad background, who has suffered abuse... Mm-hmm. there's a lot I've gone through to the point that um, I was initially reticent to seeking out therapy mm-hmm. because I thought no one would believe me. Right. No one would believe that I've been through this and that led to that and that led to this. And so I developed this like mental illness imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. which feels insane to say now, now that I'm developing proper healthy tools for coping. And so for me, at least, there's a relatability to Shatterstar because you look at his background and you can't believe it. You can't believe that he's an alien from the future who's also a rebel warrior, who's also a televised gladiator, who's also Dazzler's son, but who also has a soul bond with yada yada yada, who also has five million superpowers yeah, they just add a new one every time he pops back up, really. They really do. I bet he just got another new one from the Morrigan. Like, I guarantee oh, he just got a new power. <laughs> Love that for him. You know he did. He's going to have, like, a death sense or something. We're going to find out, I'm sure. Oh, man. But then X-Force, they just take him as he is. Mm-hmm. Richter loves Shadowstar as he is, as confusing as it is. The rest are like, okay, he's kind of weird, but he's our Shatterstar. Right. And so there's something very relatable and very touching to me about an incredibly complex person who receives love just as he is. He's sort of X-Force's combination of two New Mutants characters in that he is like magma from this completely foreign cultural context. And then like Warlock, he is like an alien being who doesn't really understand human relationships. Oh, 100%. They killed off Warlock in the transition into X-Force because his sort of comedic tone was not something Liefeld was interested in. Also, there was sort of an order from on high to refocus the books on mutant characters. But Shatterstar is almost like Liefeld's take on that archetype. Like the stranger in a strange land. Yeah, he's the Starfire. Yes, Starfire. And and that's why in Amalgam Comics, they were Shatter Starfire, which is one of my favorite amalgams. It's incredible. The thing about that is that like, unlike Magma, who is difficult, is prickly, is kind of a mean girl. And that's her friction with the team. Like she's not used to sort of having friends like this. She's used to being this noble woman. Yes. Shatterstar comes from a background where he's not used to having friends because he was a slave. Like Magma's always complaining, I don't have slaves anymore. And Shatterstar is like, I was a slave bred only for combat. So I don't know what human affection is. Yeah, It's the same sort of role in the team, but he comes at it from a supplicant position rather than a... Superior. Exactly, right. And I think that's part of why the character resonated with a lot of people in a way that I don't think Magma resonated with fans outside of how cool 
her visual is. Her power looks. It's yeah. very cool, but she's a pretty short-lived character in New Mutants, and I think it's because... She's the worst. She's off-putting. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I like off-putting characters, and I like her in certain arcs of that book, but she doesn't really gel with the team. No. And Shatterstar gels effortlessly with the team. I would say under Liefeld, he comes very close to almost being a magma. Because he's so violent. Yes, and so standoffish, and like, are we fighting? Then I care not. Call me when a warrior board is needed. Right. But I think Nisiesa softens him pretty fast. Yes. Nisiesa comes on and he's just already, he's starting to get a little humor. Richter comes back, which I think helps tremendously. Mm -hmm. Like you get that moment where Shadowstar comes up to Richter and just randomly starts speaking Spanish. Yes. And Richter's like, um, how do you know Spanish? Oh, I learned it. From watching television. Yes, for you. I wanted to have a way to communicate with you privately, which is like very interesting. I actually noted down the phrasing he uses. He starts talking about how like he can speak secrets around their enemies or our teammates. Right. When the topics of conversation are of a highly personal nature. Yes. And it's just like, oh, oh, I like this. Nisiesa said his intention was for Shatterstar to be in love with Richter and for Richter to be straight and to not reciprocate, but to be understanding and for it to be a story about how you can have gay friends and it's okay and don't be threatened by homoerotic attraction or whatever. Right. Especially from Nisiesa's perspective, as a Latino writing that story, he wanted to sort of get at Richter's machismo, at that sort of stereotype, yeah. right? I'm glad that Loeb pushed it in a different direction. I'm not really a fan of Jeff Loeb's run on x Four. Honestly, I'm not a huge fan of like Jeff Loeb's comics work outside of some of his early work on Batman. Like, I love The Long Halloween, you know what I mean? Yeah. I would say I'm not, like, a huge Loeb guy. But I think the decision to lean into, and I, I wonder if it's because of that scene about, like, our personal conversations and whatnot. You start to get more and more moments where it's self-evidently romantic. Yeah, and then they go clubbing, for instance. Mm -hmm. Like, Richter takes Shatterstar clubbing to let his hair down. And I love this. A girl called Stecky hits on Shatterstar, which is the best name ever, in my opinion, for just a random club girl. I think that might still be Nisiesa, that story. Yeah, it's still Nisiesa. Yeah. So I kind of see where Loeb got it. Yeah, that's the thing. Because it's that's the story where the girl hits on Shatterstar. Shatterstar kind of freaks out. Richter's like, what's wrong? And Shatterstar's like, I'm not used to all of this. I don't understand any of it yet. I'm still like processing all this stuff. I've never done this. I've never done anything with anyone like that. And then Richter admits in a sort of candid moment where he lets down his bravado. Listen, like I've dated girls, but I've never either. had sex either. Yeah. That does two things that I think are valuable. One is like, it's a good bonding moment for them. The other is it desexualizes his relationship with Rain from New Mutants, which I think yes. is helpful because that relationship's complicated enough without them actually being like each other's first or whatever, which is how you might initially have read it, right? Yeah. It's just one of those things that developed really organically over time. Like, even when John Francis Moore writes them both out in the road trip era, Nisiesa does that annual that's just them having, like, a very gay adventure together. Yeah, where they're I will a say couple, that's... Very clearly. That's something I really admire about Nisiesa, because obviously it's not his original plan. Right. 
but things have changed whilst he's been off the characters. And when he comes back in, he's just like, they're gay now. So we're just going to yeah. roll with this. Like that's very clearly how that annual reads. Yes. Let me honor those changes, mm-hmm. which I think is an incredibly refreshing stance in shared storytelling of comic. The sense I got talking to Fabian when he was on this podcast, which was so much fun. Another excellent episode. I love it. He's not super precious about what's done to his characters after he leaves. He understands that that's part of the magic of comics. Annie Nascenti said something similar when we were talking about Spiral. I was talking about the story Fabian did, actually, where it's revealed that Spiral and Ricochet Rita are the same person. And she was like, I didn't like that idea, but I've never read the story. And I bet that if I read it, I would like it because Fabian's a good writer. And then she was like, and the thing is, the point of comics is that you create these things and then people can do anything with them. And that's the fun of it. She's like, if you don't want that, you shouldn't be playing in a shared sandbox at all. You know, Exactly. that's, I think, the contrast to the type of creator who says, no, that character can't be gay. You compare... Liefeld's reaction about Shatterstar to, for example, Stan Lee's reaction about Iceman, which was, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Good for him. And like they moved on, you know, like. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very, it's healthy. It's a healthier attitude to be able to let that go. And that's why I hope Liefeld has moved on. But I don't know. I don't follow his interviews. He has said, because I did a little research for this episode, he has said he's changed his mind. Well, that's good. About changing him back. But it's also like, did you change your mind or did editorial say? uh, Or did everyone tell you like that would be crazy, you know? Yes, we just won a GLAAD award. We're not done doing (laughs) this. (laughs) Nisiesa also has that story where Shatterstar and Adam X are, because you know it's an ECS history because Adam X is in it. Yes. Shatterstar and Adam X are forced to fight each other in Arcade's murder world. And the hostage that's being held is Windsong, Shatterstar's wife. And this is meant clearly to make us go, his what? And then though, we come to understand that Mojo World is even more fucked up than we understood it to be in that they've never met. They've like yes. seen each other through screens and they know they are like the two slaves whose genetic material will be used together to forge the next generation of slaves. Yeah, they're breeding stuff. Yes, and it's a completely emotionless, forced on him thing. And it creates such a strong contrast with the relationship he builds with Richter, which is born entirely out of a Spartan or Theban kind of battle camaraderie. Yeah. They are a battle couple. Exactly. And I think that's exactly what Shadowstar wants. He Mm -hmm. wants his Theban warrior at his side. Yes. He wants that lover who understands everything about him, including the fight. And that's why I think when Richter is withdrawn into himself, Shatterstar doesn't understand it and doesn't know how to pull him out of it and sometimes just fucks off to do other things because he's like, get back to me when you can be the person I need you to be. Yeah, he becomes a little bit of a lost puppy when Richter is withdrawn. Yeah, and it's not the most empathetic way to react, which is why I think Richter is justified in being aggravated with him. Oh, 100%. On the other hand, empathy is something Shatterstar only learned when he came to our world. So it's difficult. There are faults on both sides. Yeah. But I think that's part of the appeal to me. Yes, of the Because it's this very 
unvarnished couple. Like, they can be messy, they can fight. And Richter is a very street-smart character, which makes the banter between them appealing because it's like, of course this is the character who Shatterstar needs to teach him about the world. Because Richter grew up in a cartel family, was a mercenary as a teenager, has been superheroing since he was a kid, has a lot of problems, but also is very savvy about people around you, people who will take advantage of you, things that would be dangerous. So he can pull Shatterstar back from things that Shatterstar would just charge into. And I think that that's helpful. I also think it's helpful that Richter is very anti-authority. Yes. Because Shatterstar has a tendency to become a good little soldier. Right. Like he falls into line, he falls into rank, and he follows orders. So it's really good that he has someone who pulls him back and just says every so often, like, you can do things for yourself. Mm -hmm. You can be your own person. I realize we've gone off on a tangent, but the relationship with Richter is another thing that I love about the character. Yeah. Because it enriches him. It builds him up. It's a relationship that even when it's in the bad times, it's mutually beneficial to both characters because it informs them so much. Yeah, and that's why I think it was really smart to bring him back now when Richter is at sort of his lowest point post-apocalypse. Yeah. Because Richter's had such an interesting trajectory over the course of Excalibur where he was at a very low point. Apocalypse helped him find happiness in whatever sense again and now it feels like it's been taken from him and all he can do is be like well I'll just focus on this magic which is like is this healthy for him unclear we'll see and Shatterstar is the person who can show up and be like I make you happy though when we're getting along like we do make each other happy much of the time I'm interested to see that play out because like I said in the North Star episode my problem with the North Star and Kyle relationship is that outside of a very very brief set of stories in Marjorie Lou's run before the abrupt wedding there isn't really any tension in the marriage no for me as someone who likes superheroes because they're soap opera it's a soap opera yeah especially the x-men exactly like i want the gay characters to have as much relationship drama as the straight characters do i love that the mystique and destiny plot is the center of the entire x-men line right now i would not have imagined that when i was a kid and i was explaining to people who didn't believe me the coded hints that claremont had left to show that mystique and destiny were a couple So that blows my mind. I like that that drama is happening. As we said, with the female characters, there isn't enough right now. And we need one happy couple, let's say, at least, if we're going to do that. But because of North Star and Kyle on some level, we have the space for the male characters in these relationships to have messy, complicated relationships. Right. Because it's not like all the gay people are miserable. North Star and Kyle seem happy. I mean, I would like them to shake that one up a little bit too, but we'll get into that another time. The big thing for me is what keeps something fresh in an ongoing comic book is when the relationship evolves and changes. I am interested to see how Rogue and Gambit will be now that they're on different teams. I think that's a really good choice Yeah, because it's easy to settle into we're a pair. Whereas with this, we've gotten the honeymoon period. If he's in Otherworld and she is on the X-Men in New York, what does that do in terms of distance? Does distance 
make their relationship more complicated? Or like, is he always hopping through the gate to see her? Is she always hopping through the gate to see him? Are their coworkers going to get annoyed about that? Like, there's all kinds of things you can do that are real problems that married people have. Right. Because it's not that marriage is the end of a superhero story the way that like Joe Casada felt it was for Spider-Man. I don't think that's necessarily true. But I think that there need to be complications. And what I like about Richter and Shatterstar is they are similarly characters who've been paired now for 30 years in whatever capacity. And so fans do expect them to be together. But I like that there has been a resistance to just having them be a happily married whatever. They always, because they're both very flawed people and their relationship has a lot of complexity to it, they orbit each other and they always come back to each other. But the relationship isn't necessarily sustainable full time. And I find that very realistic. I think it reflects the experience of a lot of queer men. Oh, definitely. So I like it in that respect. And I'm excited to see where it goes from here because personally, I'm very interested in the direction Richter's taken over the last two years because it could go one of two ways. Richter's like finding his power and that could be great or it could be like a dark Richter saga, right? Like we're not, I'm not 100% sure where it's going. I 100% think we're going to get a dark Richter saga. That moment where he calls on the druids to me felt like signing on the dotted line of a very dark pact. Yeah, I don't know. You know, obviously my... Yeah, my thing, obviously, a lot of sphere of influence for me is D&D. Right. And I feel like Richter just took a level in Warlock. He just signed on the dotted line to a patron. And it's just like, huh. The Celtic gods are fraught entities, let's say. Yeah. I say this as a fan myself of Irish heritage. (laughs) You know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But, (laughs) I mean, we just had... What's interesting to me about it is Richter's becoming a druid at the same time that Shatterstar has now made this weird, violent bond with the Morrigan, who is the Celtic goddess of death. What does that mean? I don't know, but I'm eager to find out. Because one thing I think is very clever about Excalibur is the way that the different characters are being tied into the fantasy themes of Otherworld. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, that's what I love about that book most, I think, apart from the fact that and I just have like a very similar take on Betsy Braddock. So that's very rewarding. But, you know, I think as we get deeper into Otherworld and Richter gets deeper into mutant magic, Shatterstar can be a bulwark against his darker nature, but has a darker nature of his own, has a certain bloodlust, has a strike first, ask questions later kind of mentality a lot of the time. Yeah, there's also the thing that Richter is getting in contact with the earth and life and growth. Yes, and Shatterstar has gotten in connection with death. Yes, so like they could get to a point where they're compatible emotionally, but now they've got this new magic barrier. So I'm definitely intrigued. I think that's probably a good time for us to pause for the Cerebro character file on Gavidra 7, best known as Shatterstar, I will take you from New Mutants 99 all the way up through Excalibur 21, and we will do our best to understand. Luke is raising his hand. Luke, what do you want to say? I do just want to, um, before we get into the character file, Connor, as your friend, I'm so sorry I did this to you. (laughs) To be fair, I decided to do Pride Month, and I knew that Shatterstar was going to be a real doozy. (laughs) So, (laughs) kick back. Relax, pour yourself a glass of Mojo brand, whatever, and uh, we will be right back for more with Luke Ruddick on Shatterstar. X-Men, X-Men. 
Kavidra 7, better known as Shatterstar, or Star for short, is a breakout character of the 90s X-Force title who later rose to greater prominence as one of Marvel's few explicitly bisexual heroes. Created by Rob Liefeld and Fabian Niciesa, Star was one of several new characters introduced after Louise Simonson was pushed out of New Mutants and the title transitioned to X-Force. A fierce gladiator from the far future of the alien Mojo world, Star has trouble understanding human norms and customs. His close friendship with teammate Julio Richter took on a homoerotic undertone in the 90s after Liefeld's departure from the title, and the relationship was made explicitly textual by Peter David in 2009 in X-Factor Investigations. Star debuts in New Mutants 99, with story and art by Rob Liefeld and script by Fabian Niciesa. Star is a rebel leader on 100 years in the future of the Mojo world, an alien reality built on television and mass media, best known to X-readers by this point as the home of the hero Longshot and the villainous Spiral. The X-Men are worshipped as historical figures in this Mojoverse future, and the Cadre Alliance, which attempts to free slaves like Shatterstar from the rule of Mojo 5, use a combination of magic and technology to transport Star back in time and across dimensions to seek help from these heroes of legend. He lands in the Danger Room, only to discover in the following issue, the final issue of New Mutants, that the X-Men are in outer space at the time. He's greeted instead by Cable and the New Mutants, but when the Danger Room's defense systems activate, he assumes he's under attack. Cable knocks him out, and while Star wakes up calmer, he's now pursued by the dog soldiers of Mojo's army. During the fight, Star's characterized as willing to win at all costs. He impales his own abdomen with a sword in order to destroy an enemy behind him. His time travel device damaged in the battle, Star is left trapped on Earth-616 in the present. Cable and Star cut a deal. Star joins the newly minted X-Force in exchange for Cable's vow to one day help him liberate Mojo World. Even for the more violent X-Force team, which takes a proactive stance versus Xavier's reactive one, Shatterstar is an especially bloody fighter. He chops off Mutant Liberation Front member Reaper's hand and only resists killing him because Cable has asked that they only kill in self-defense. Another hyper-violent new team member, Feral, finds him morally condescending and flirts with him to make him uncomfortable. We see that Star has little understanding of romance or sex, and he mostly finds Feral confusing. In A Team-Up with Spider-Man by writer-artist Todd McFarlane, we learn Star's swords were mystically forged in a way that gives him special properties. He's able to break through the Juggernaut's magical defenses and stab his eyes out. They grow back, don't worry about it. In a Wolverine story by Fabian Niciesa, Star helps the titular hero track down a teenage street gang called the Vid Kids, who've been murdering mutants on camera in snuff films. Star bows before the older hero, calling him Lord Wolverine, and reveals that by Star's future time, Wolverine, like many of the X-Men, has become a legendary figure for his work opposing Mojo's rule. Back in the pages of X-Force, after an attack by the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Cable orders Shatterstar to execute the villain Mask, and he does so without hesitation. While the rest of the team is warning the other Morlocks to take Mask's fate as an example, Star hangs back and ends up tangling with Deadpool, who defeats him. Deadpool is working for the mysterious Mr. Tolliver, don't worry about it, and X-Force ends up separated from Cable with their headquarters compromised. That's where Rob Liefeld leaves Marvel to co-found Image Comics, and Fabian Niciesa assumes full writing duties on X-Force. Around the same time, in X-Men 11 by Jim Lee and Scott Lobdell, the X-Men Dazzler and Longshot learn that Dazzler is pregnant, and it's hinted that Shatterstar might be their future child. This plot will be dropped for decades, but eventually revisited. X-Force begins operating out of Camp Verde, teammate Warpath's former reservation in Arizona, abandoned after the massacre of his tribe. In the franchise-wide event Executioner's Song, Professor Xavier is nearly killed by a man who appears to be Cable, and X-Force is thrust into battle with the other mutant teams. Ultimately defeated by Wolverine, Star is taken into custody with the others. Though Cable's exonerated, he's apparently killed, and X-Force is eventually allowed to go free to set up permanent headquarters at Camp Verde. 
They have various adventures in this period, with Star continuing to learn human ways. In the next big conflict with the MLF, Star cuts off one of Reaper's hands again. Reaper's lucky there are bionic ones on the market, basically. And Star saves the day when Siren's life is threatened, through a clever use of his mutant power to channel vibrations through his swords, or whatever, don't worry about it too much. But Feral defects to the MLF. Not long after this, Star is kidnapped by the supervillain Arcade and thrust into Murder World. It turns out Arcade has been hired by Major Domo, Mojo's right hand, to take the threat Star poses to the future Mojoverse. Star rescues a series of hostages from Murder World, but then is forced to battle Adam X, the extreme, don't worry about it, who reveals the existence of another hostage, Windsong, Shatterstar's wife. Or rather, his betrothed, I guess, because they're supposed to breed together or something. He doesn't really know her. Don't worry about it. It's Mojo World stuff. She turns out to be a hologram, and they nab Arcade, and Arcade turns out to be a robot double, so really the whole thing's kind of a waste of a day. The ordeal at least inspires Star to open up emotionally to teammate Richter about his past, and their friendship deepens. Star begins learning Spanish so that he and Richter can communicate privately in front of their teammates. As Niciace's run draws to a close, Star helps bring Feral to justice when it turns out she's responsible for several cold case murders. Then he and Richter go out clubbing in Manhattan, and Star is overwhelmed and flustered by the seductive attentions of a woman on the dance floor. Panicked, he confides in Richter that he's never been physically intimate with anyone, and the concept of love is alien to his culture. Richter reveals he's a virgin himself, and promises the two will figure all this stuff out together. Under new writer Jeff Loeb, X-Force moves back into the X-Mansion, and Cable begins barking orders again. He says they'll be working closely with the X-Men's telepaths, which upsets Richter, who decides he wants to leave the team and return to Mexico for a while. Star is devastated and begins acting recklessly and emotionally in battle. He gets shot in the chest by Genosian magistrates and winds up in Hank McCoy's lab, where the beast detects strange anomalies in Star's DNA. His healing factor isn't working very well anymore, and his other powers also seem to be waning in strength. The mystery deepens when X-Force finds a criminal dossier on a man named Benjamin Russell, a runaway with Star's exact face and fingerprints. Star and Siren visit the Wiseman Institute for the Criminally Insane, where Siren had experienced the alteration of her own memories sometime earlier, and encounter agents of the omniscient telepathic criminal called the Games Master. It turns out Benjamin Russell had once been a patient at this institute, and the Games Master suddenly transmits his memories into Star's mind. The Games Master claims he created Shatterstar, and that all of Star's memories of Mojo World and being a rebel leader are fictional. The plot gets interrupted by Onslaught, don't worry about it, but once that's over, X-Force tries to investigate. Kidnapped by Mojo alongside Cable, Star learns that Mojo has discovered facts about the future Mojo World Star comes from. The Hundred Years' War is destined to end with Shatterstar slaying Mojo and liberating the slaves, so Mojo intends to kill him now and avert that timeline. He nearly succeeds, and Star is mortally wounded, but for reasons unclear, the time-dancing sorceress Spiral, Mojo's most ruthless operative, betrays him. She teleports Star, X-Force, and Longshot to the hospital bed where Benjamin Russell lies in a coma. Spiral claims Russell has been comatose ever since his mutant power first manifested. She directs Longshot in a ritual of Mojoverse sorcery that merges Star's mental essence into Russell's healthy but non-sentient body. Star is restored to health, now both Gavidra Seven and Benjamin Russell with the memories of both men and believing them both to be his true self. What the hell does all of this mean? Who knows? It's never been fucking explained, ever. And Loeb leaves the book directly after this story. New writer John Francis Moore promptly writes Shatterstar out in issue 70, sending him down to Mexico with Richter when Richter decides to go take down his family's criminal operation once and for all. They pop up again briefly a year later in issue 76, where Arcade captures Star again and forces him to act as a gladiator fighting his former teammate Domino. It all works out okay. Another year later, Star and Richter get their own spotlight story in the 1999 X-Force Annual, written by Fabian Luciesa. 
While they're breaking up the Richter family's criminal operations, they wind up entangled with Frischlagen Industries, a biochemical company experimenting on mutants. In the end, they destroy the evil Dr. Hanna Verschlagen and her eugenic experiments. That's the last of Shatterstar for several years until he returns in a pair of confusing miniseries, X-Force Shatterstar by Rob Liefeld and Laurent Michaels, and X-Force by Fabian Niciesa and Rob Liefeld. No longer close with Richter, for reasons undisclosed, Star has become a pit fighter in Madripoor. He comes into conflict with Spiral, who aims to summon an evil entity called the Scorn, S-K-O-R-N-N, and honestly, do not worry about any of this. It's mostly a story about Spiral going crazy, which, like, you know, she's already pretty crazy, but, like, it's a, it's a lot. She goes real crazy. The X-Force miniseries takes the plot to Tibet, where Star has tried and failed to find enlightenment outside battle at a monastery. He and Cable destroy the Scorn. Again, don't worry about it. After the decimation in 2005, where the Scarlet Witch, in a fit of madness, depowers almost all mutants on Earth, a handbook called the 198 Files detailed the 198 known mutants who had retained their gifts. Shatterstar is listed among them, and in his paragraph it's noted he was once merged with Benjamin Russell, implying that he no longer is. This is about as close as you can get to an on-panel canonical, don't worry about it. He next appears in Civil War X-Men by David Hine and Yannick Paquette, part of the 2006 company-wide event Civil War, in which he and Domino team up with their old friend Caliban to liberate about half of the 198 out of forced government custody to Xavier's, which has been converted into a supervised refugee camp. With help from Captain America and Nick Fury, who've gone rogue as part of the Civil War, they secure a space in Nevada to hide the mutants away. But things go awry because General Laser, don't worry about it, tries to kill everybody. In the end, the president decides the Office of National Emergency Protocols are violating mutant civil rights, and the so-called reservation at Xavier's becomes opt-in rather than compulsory. After three years of absence, Star returns in 2009 in Peter David's X-Factor Investigations. Captured and brainwashed by Cortex, a rogue time-loss duplicate of Jamie Madrox, Star's tasked with assassinating Richter. His alien mind is able to resist the programming, and emboldened by his love for Richter, he eventually breaks free. Instead of doing further violence, he grabs Richter and kisses him passionately in front of Richter's teammates, much to everyone's surprise. This sequence in X-Factor 45 is the first on-panel kiss between two male superheroes in a Marvel comic. He now has a teleportation power, don't worry about it. He uses Richter's mind as his anchor for teleporting, which is romantic and Anyway, he joins up with X-Factor Investigations and becomes part of the regular cast there, and he and Richter officially start dating. But Star doesn't really understand the concept of monogamy, which frustrates Richter. He hits on everything that moves, even when Richter's standing right there. After a mission to Latveria, Star becomes stranded there with Layla Miller, the spooky little girl from pre-Shatter Star issues of X-Factor Investigations. Don't worry about it, she's a grown-up now. And the two are implied to have a sexual affair before eventually returning to New York. When they get back, Star has a heart-to-heart with Richter, where Richter admits Star's hedonistic explorations are hurting him emotionally. Star explains that while he really enjoys being with multiple partners, Richter is the most important thing in his life, and he doesn't want to experience anything new without Richter at his side at the end of the day. They're about to have makeup sex when Wolfsbane arrives, extremely pregnant. She has a homophobic panic attack and tackles Star out the window. Then she lies to Richter and tells him the baby is his. Yeah, cool character. Deciding to give Rain and Richter some space, Star goes to Las Vegas with the rest of the team and ends up facing off with the forces of the Asgardian death goddess Hela. One of those vassals is Krimhari, the Asgardian wolf prince, who turns out to actually be the father of Rain's baby. This is when the Heroic Age X-Men Marvel Handbook comes out, which reiterates the detail from the 198 files that Star and Benjamin Russell are no longer merged. Still, not something you need to worry about. Star returns from Vegas to find Richter's already figured out Rain's baby isn't his. Richter's furious and never wants to speak to her again, but Star convinces him to maintain their friendship because she's clearly in a bad place. 
Still, encouraged by Monet, Star takes Rain aside himself to discuss matters. Rain apologizes for her initial reaction to Rick and Star's relationship, and they begin a friendship of their own. But then they're attacked by legions of supernatural creatures who want Rain's baby. Star glories in the battle, but Rain gives birth by vomiting up the baby mystically. Don't worry about it, and it all goes pretty horribly wrong. Traumatized, Rain rejects the baby, who vanishes in the chaos. After Richter regains his mutant powers with help of the Scarlet Witch, Star feels them drifting apart. Richter becomes overconfident and starts showing off, and Star feels tempted to return to his affair with Layla from Latveria. Layla reminds him that Richter is who he really wants. Not long after this, Star has a little spotlight adventure with Madrox, where he battles a new warrior from Mojo World called Scattershot. Regretting her rejection of her baby, Rain decides to look for him, and Richter and Star agree to help. Star teleports them straight to Nifelheim to talk to Krimhari, and yada yada yada, they end up fighting with their former teammate Darwin, who's also hunting for the baby. Darwin has foreseen that Rain's son Tyr is going to bring about hell on Earth and is trying to kill him. Richter and Star stave him off, reunite Rain and Tyr, and secure them at a safe house before returning to New York. The Hell on Earth war does start up, though, and you don't need to worry about it. All that matters for this particular story is that Mephisto ends up incinerating Star and Richter, apparently killing them. They actually get transported through time and space to the past of Mojo World, where Star is discovered early in the initial rebellion against Mojo by the rebel scientist Arise. Star becomes part of the early Cadre Alliance, but is captured and brainwashed into Mojo's service. He's rescued by the rebels and Richter, who had also been pressed into service as a gladiator, and they meet Longshot, who has been newly created at this time. It turns out Arise used Shatterstar's genetic material to help clone this new leader for the Resistance. Richter is the one who names him Longshot in a time paradox, recognizing him as the future Longshot Richter will come to know. After Mojo's forces attack the Alliance base, Star teleports himself and Richter forward in time, where they discover Allison Blair, the X-Men Dazzler, in labor giving birth to a baby. Shatterstar. Star and Richter help Allie deliver baby Star, and then Star informs Richter he's aware of certain things that must take place in order to preserve the timeline. They use Arise's machinery to erase Dazzler and Longshot's memories of their child, and then travel with the baby into the far future, where they leave him to be raised as per Shatterstar's backstory. This very confusing jaunt is the last Shatterstar and Richter story in X-Factor Investigations. Star and Rick abruptly reappear on Earth four years later during the 2017 company-wide event Secret Empire where they team up with Strong Guy and Rain in the mutant haven called Mu Tian. The following year, in the Iceman solo series written by Sinna Grace, Richter informs us he and Star have broken up. But they're back together by the time of New Mutants Dead Souls by Matthew Rosenberg and Adam Gorham, where Star is mostly a charming background character. This leads into the solo miniseries Shatterstar by Tim Seeley and Gerardo Sandoval, where Star has taken on a new role under the name Ben Gavidra as the landlord of Manor Crossing, a halfway house for interdimensional transplants. He's sad about his latest breakup with Richter, who's now managing a nightclub, and they end up having an adventure together. This is a cute miniseries that's worth reading, though your mileage may vary on the introduction of Gringrave, an anime-flavored female assassin from Mojo World who's also Star's ex-lover. She dies, so don't worry too much about it, especially because this whole landlord plot is apparently dropped after the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, in which Star becomes one of countless mutants to join the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. After becoming a Krakoan citizen, Star is abducted back to Mojo World, where he's enslaved and forced to participate in Twitch-style livestream blood sport. The newest iteration of X-Factor vows to rescue him, and eventually they team up with Dazzler to liberate Mojo World once and for all, enlisting Star to slay the Irish death goddess called the Morrigan, who's possessed Siren. Don't worry about it. Star succeeds in killing the ancient deity, but has clearly been somehow affected by her final curse. Now reunited with Richter in the pages of Excalibur, he stands on shaky ground. 
both of them have changed. Touched by Celtic magic, neither truly understands. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you have not traveled through time to become your own grandfather. We are back to talk more about Shatterstar. This is a character who has a long and very weird publication history. So I'd love to talk about your favorite storylines and then the things you don't like so much yeah. before we get into questions. I feel like favorite storylines, we're not going to be dwelling on that for too long because um, <laughs> <laughs> I love Shatterstar. I love him so much, but he's been done dirty. Yeah. He's had some very rough patches. He's just minor enough that he doesn't get a consistent character, I'd say, but still important enough to the fans, but he keeps popping back up. Favorite storylines? The Nicieza stuff is, to me, perfect. It's um, really the foundation of the Richter and Shatstar relationship. And I think if uh, you ship those characters now, you should definitely go back and try to find that run. Mm -hmm. It builds so brilliantly, I think. The Loeb stuff is complicated in terms of story. It's not great. It's a don't worry about it. I mean, the whole Shatterstar saga, he tried to magma Shatterstar, actually. It's actually exactly what Nisiesa does to magma which Claremont then undid, which is when Magma in the early 90s is retconned into a girl named Alison Cressmere and Nova Roma turns out to be a trick by Celine and all of those memories are fake. That, I think, was an attempt to fix all of the weirdness with Nova Roma and make Magma a more usable character. Yeah. But it did also take out pretty much everything that was unique about the character. And so when Claremont brought her back, he immediately was like, no, that was a trick. Nova Roma was real. In the same way, Loeb creates this story where it appears that Shatterstar was born on our Earth as a boy named Benjamin Russell. When his mutant power activated, he somehow was displaced from his body or something. And goes into a coma. And the whole Mojoverse thing is a deception created by the games master don't worry about him from the upstarts and spiral it's all very very confusing i felt in those stories that it was implied maybe that spiral was shatterstar's mother oh there's definitely an element of that because you get that panel that cuts in on her talking about them and she's just like both of these boys are very dear to me. Right. And you're like, why? Yeah, for Spiral <laughs> to be saying that the person is dear to her, it's... Because uh... Spiral just sees people as toys yeah. to break and to reshape. Like, she's not really into compassion or feeling things. And I definitely think that would, be, would have been interesting because then you kind of set it up as Benjamin Russell as the ricochet reader well, right. to Shatterstar's Spiral. Exactly. It's just a brilliant parallel. It, the problem is it's not done in a way that makes any sense whatsoever. At all. Right. It does not make sense. Yeah. I mean, you could almost rationalize it as Shatterstar being, like, as his mutant power being that he projects this heroic self out and that self is Shatterstar. But it's very, there's, you really have to no prize your way out of it to yeah. the point where I don't think it will ever be mentioned again. No. And even when Lope solves it, you get that last panel where it pans out and Shadowstar's on a screen being watched by Gamesmaster. Right. And Gamesmaster is laughing his ass off, implying that we've all been tricked. Yes, this is not to be confused with the Grandmaster, the character that yes. he deals with in the Tim Seeley mini, which is a different person. Lots of G-Masters in all of this. Yeah, Star loves a master. He does. He does. 
the other problem is that it's Loeb's last story on the book. And it feels a little rushed. Yeah, and he does that arc and then he's just off. And like John Francis Moore has clearly no interest in digging, like r- literally writes them both out immediately. Yeah. Because I think he was just like, I don't want to touch this. It's confusing. Yeah. The road trip vibe, it doesn't really feel like Shatterstar is going on the road trip. Yeah, you can't put the strange alien boy who carries around two katanas and throwing stars in the back of a Buick and have him hit <sighs> Burning Man. Right. I mean, okay, maybe he would have fit in a Burning Man, but when they're in a diner or going bowling, he's going to stand out like a sore thumb. We sort of trade him and Richter out for Danny, which is part of why it feels more like a New Mutants book. Yeah, Uh, but I will say the Paulina art, whenever he draws Shatterstar, I'm just, what, chef's kiss. Yeah, no, it's... It's quality. He draws him dynamic. He kind of streamlines the hair down to just a high pony. He streamlines the costume down. I mean, he makes all those men look hot. Warpath, I don't think, has ever looked better. Warpath in (laughs) X-Force around that era is definitely, uh, it was an awakening. It was a moment. Yeah, him and Risqué, him and Siren. Yes. When he's playing around with Risqué and Risqué, it's just like, no, no, you, you don't need to wear a shirt. Right. And maybe just unbutton your jeans and just stand Yeah, they have like a Batman-Catwoman thing that's really fun. Yeah. I'm glad she's back. I'd like yes. to see her pop up in Ayala's New Mutants now that Warpath is taking on more of a role there. I think that would be fun. I'd love to see her everywhere because we just saw that mention of her in um, X-Corp. Right, and she's been in S.W.O.R.D. in a couple sort of cameos. Yeah. She's important to the experiments they're doing on the S.W.O.R.D. station, but I'd love to see her and Jimmy just like get a drink or something or have an adventure. I think it'd Definitely. Because actually, you know, I'm not a huge Necrotia fan, but probably like the best part of the main X-Force Necrotia story is the part where Risqué sees him and manages to break free of the programming and is like, you need to run because I'm about to make this explode and you need to run. James, run, run. It's a very cool moment. It is. I like whenever someone breaks free from... I mean, that is how Shatterstar and Richter have their first kiss. Yeah. Shatterstar is sent to kill Richter. He's been mind-controlled, and then he manages to break free. I always find that to be an appealing beat. It's like, my love for you is powerful enough that I can overcome brainwashing or whatever. I like it when it's romantic. I like it when it's parent-child. I like it when it's even just best friends. That's always a beat that I enjoy. Yeah, that kind of frantic, I have just a moment, and I'm going to use that moment to do everything I can to save you. Right. And also, let's face it, who wouldn't break through brainwashing for Jimmy Browstar? Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. The 1999 annual of X-Force, where Nisiesa comes back. Did, yeah. yeah. That really cements the um, gay vibe between Richter and Shatterstar. You know, they're sleeping Absolutely. in the same room. They sure are. We learned that Richter has learned the language of the Kadra Alliance to be able to uh, communicate with Shatterstar. As a sort of quid pro quo yeah. of Shatterstar learning Spanish back in Nisiesa's X-Force run. And like Shatterstar is dressed in a bandana and a leather vest. It's very gay. Well, and also the whole plot is them like dealing with unwanted children. Like it's a very, it's just, there's a lot going on. Yeah, And I do always wonder because in at the end of that issue, you get a little panel on the bottom of, if you want to see more of Shatterstar Richter and Neurotap, who is a character who comes up in that. Character Nisiesa introduced in the X-Verse annual at the beginning of the 90s with Adam X. She was his girlfriend who betrays them. And then she comes back in this because it ties up that plot. Yeah. And it just ends with write in and say, we want our triple X. Man, that would have been a fun book. Yeah, I would love to have seen what triple X would have been with just this two guys and a couple and their tag along friend. 
Ally Neurotap. Give Fabian a Neurotap mini. Juggernaut was fun. Yeah. Why not? Have him come back to X-Men Legends. Was... Yeah, I'm sure he'd like to. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, that's a legend where he has aged well, in my opinion. There are other creators in the line where you maybe don't want to go back. I will be honest. I have not read the Simon X Factor one yet. And I love Simonson X Factor in all its weirdness, but... I haven't felt compelled. I think I'm enjoying the current stuff so much that X-Men Legends is not yeah, for me necessarily. Yeah, it very much feels like a book for the people who don't like the current era and maybe want Yeah, to- which I think is good to have. Yeah, I think exactly. it's good to have something for those people, but I don't, like, I'm so keen on looking forward the way that we are right now that I'm not super feeling the need, apart from this podcast where I dig into the actual <laughs> classic stuff, but I'm not, I'm not super feeling a need to tell stories in the past. Yeah. Unless it's, I would love, like, I love a classic X-Men backup. If they were doing stuff like that, that would be cool to me. I like a flashback moment. I like that kind of thing, but in the service of a new story. And I think that where X-Men Legends, I think, has the most appeal for me is in sort of writing wrongs. Like, I do feel that what was done to Fabian with Adam X was shitty. And so I'm glad that Fabian got a chance. Yeah, It was nice to have him come back to be able to tie that up. I would love to see more stuff like that. Yeah, I would love to see a Legends about Neurotap. I can say, hand on my heart, I don't want to read a Legends about Peter David's X Factor because we don't necessarily need to go back to that. Yeah, I have very little interest in that. Um, both because I mean, we danced around it earlier, but like I've been pretty sour on Peter David since his racist tirade about Romani people yeah. at Comic Con. Yeah, the idea of him like going back to write Quicksilver is not super appealing to me. Mm, yeah, speaking of someone who that has a personal level to, right? I cannot agree more. Yeah, especially when you look back at. Um, I'm just going to take a moment to talk about this. When you look back at X-Factor Investigations, yeah. when Quicksilver comes back, after he's gotten his powers back and he's gone through the whole weird Terragenesis thing, mm-hmm. and he's homeless, he's kind of constantly depicted as grubby and crazed. And he's preying on people and tricking them into giving him things. He's cheating them. With the hindsight of his of that speech, it feels very, very unpleasant especially because he wants to kill Layla Miller a 12 year old girl and a big part of that tirade that Peter David went on was about Romani people allegedly harming children yes harming children for their own ends to exploit them so it's just like based on an entirely specious racist myth yes that he held on to for almost 20 years it was telling that he held on to it for so long and that's the thing that kind of hurt me on a personal level. Right. This is not a Quicksilver podcast, but as someone, again, who has Romany heritage, who loved Quicksilver as your favorite character, this is the writer who Defined defined him. the stories that you were most attached to. And yeah. so for that writer to reveal this level of bigotry against the community is... Hurtful. That's really disappointing. Yeah. That's going to hurt yeah. just really deeply. It was a punch in the gut when I watched that footage. I don't think we should go too deep into no. this because it's... We yeah. can move on. It's, it's, it's just, it's unpleasant. Yeah, and I think part of that, because I... I think we've covered a lot of the good, like the best Shadowstar story. Why don't we get into the stuff you don't love? Okay, so um, I think it's relevant because we were discussing that Peter David incident. 
as I was re rereading X Factor Investigations for this episode, I went in with um, a better view of it and probably a slightly less charitable view of it. And I feel like it was great that he um, took Richter and Shadowstar and put it on the page. But looking at the treatment after that of a lot of things about Shadowstar's sexuality, mm-hmm. I don't love it. It's a very short, like once he decided that Richter was gay and Shatterstar was bi, which those are decisions that David made. He sort of applied those designations to the characters. He then falls into an enormously stereotypical portrayal of bisexuality, which is that Shatterstar is incapable of monogamy and can't stop fucking everyone that moves. And it would be selfish, Richter, for me to spend all of my time with you when I want to explore everything the world has to offer. You're not enough for me. It's very much a... And it's played as while he was away, Shatterstar came to better understand his desires and to understand human emotion. There's a fantasy explanation for it, a sci-fi explanation for it, but it comes across as this character is bisexual, so now he is an emotionally unavailable slut. Which, you know, I have no problem with a character being an emotionally unavailable slut. In fact, some of my favorite people are emotionally unavailable sluts. For most of my 20s, I was an emotionally unavailable slut. Oh, same. That's not the problem. The problem is that when this is your only bisexual male character in the entire franchise, uh, which I believe is until Prodigy came out the case. No, um, didn't didn't um, Akihiro come out before Prodigy? Oh, yeah, but he was evil and oh, was also, yes. until yeah. very recently, was an even nastier stereotype. Yeah. I meant like in the X, like yes. of the heroes. Of the I was heroes. trying to think. Yeah. You know, it really is just one of those things where, I mean, I found it sexy because Shatterstar, also, when he comes back and is like, I'm queer now, he cut his hair. So I was all <laughs> in. I was like, I love this for me. Yeah, he cuts his hair. He starts wearing a better outfit. Yeah, he gets a cool new costume. He cuts his hair short. He looks a lot actually like Tommy Jagger from Checkmate. I was all about that. But like I said, I like the drama of Richter and Shatterstar. I like the problems of it. I like that it's not an easy relationship for either of them. Yeah. I did feel like after everything that had happened between Richter and Rain, I wanted Richter and Shatterstar to be more of a safe place than it was. Yeah, because you definitely get the sense that in terms of the romance... Richter is the hero, and Shadowstar is kind of the mean boy. He's being, he gets dismissive. He's being insensitive. He's being unkind. And it very much does play into that stereotype of bisexuals that if you're a gay person dating a bisexual, they're not going to be satisfied with you, which is a very pernicious idea in our community. And listen, as a gay man, have I been guilty of having these thoughts and insecurities? Absolutely. And I think Richter having those insecurities makes total sense. Worrying about, like, he's out there with hot girls. Do I have to worry about that? That is a character beat and a complication in their relationship that I think makes sense and I think could be interesting to explore. I think if... This is now my fantasy world. If we establish that Rachel's a lesbian and that Betsy is bisexual, that would be an interesting thing to explore there. Because these are complicated, intraqueer things that are very real. And I like when we can get messy and we can talk about this stuff. 
it's one thing to do that, and it's another thing to just sort of play it for comedy via stereotype, yeah. via this sort of broad stereotype, which is what I think Peter David really does with that character. Yeah. It's just sort of like, bisexuals just can't get enough fuck it, and they're not loyal. And that's just sort of the vibe, Yeah, you know? And it's so dis- it's so vastly different from Shatterstar's earlier characterization, oh, where Richter was his entire world, that the only real difference is that now he's bisexual, and suddenly it has changed his personality to such an extent that he's disloyal and, you know, promiscuous and all of this stuff that again, would be fine in a vacuum, but as the one bisexual character is a mess. You want to know where this comes from? Because again, I did research for this. Peter David took his inspiration for that take on Shatterstar from Captain Jack Harkness. Well, that tracks. Yeah. I mean, now that character is very beloved by a lot of bisexual and pansexual people that I know, but certainly is that stereotype, you know? And in that case... I think because he got to be a hero in his own right, it became less problematic. But Shatterstar in these stories is absolutely a secondary character to Richter's narrative rather than the protagonist of any narrative in this Peter David run. And like he said about it, like the most interesting dynamic will stem from the fact that Shatterstar is now the equivalent of a kid in a candy store. Mm -hmm. And that's... Yeah, that's not something I think is very um, fulfilling for bisexual representation. And it also kind of feeds into this other problem I have with Peter David's work, which is that he has a team and he'll do a story arc where one or two of the characters get a very kind of serious, emotional, deep, maudlin plot for a couple of issues. And then everyone around them is doing who's on first, these very kind of vaudeville slapstick classic comedy stuff Mm -hmm. and by the time Shatterstar comes onto the team they're clocking in at like 10 or 12 members on average yeah and he's gone deep into Madrox he's gone deep into Layla Miller he goes deep into like uh, Rain and Monet I had forgotten by the way that there's a whole arc where Shatterstar is fucking Layla Miller oh Yes. Which makes me want to die. I had forgotten that entirely. I don't like that at all. When they're like in Latveria together and it's never on panel, but they talk about it afterward. I like really primordially hate that. And then like Richter finally confronts Shatterstar about him wanting this open relationship and just wanting to sleep with everyone. And he just kind of jokingly screams like, next you'll be saying you just want us to be a frupple with Layla. And Shatterstar's like, oh yeah, I'd really like that. I would love that. Layla, how do you feel? And Layla says yes. And I want to just put my head against the desk and cry a little because it's terrible. But like Shatterstar, he gets that one conversation with Richter that lasts for like two pages about how he's new to this He has complications about how he feels. He has complications about his sexuality. He's trying to figure it out. And he'd like to explore that and explore it with Richter because he loves him and he means a lot to him. But he also wants to define himself by experimentation. And that's, I think, a good conversation, except it never gets resolved. Right. And after that, Shatterstar is purely slapstick. Mm -hmm. And he's also the subject of a lot of gay jokes, a lot of really cool gay jokes. And it becomes doubly so cool 
because he can't understand that people are making fun of him. Right. Like he's played as clueless. He's this clueless alien. So when Guido asks him if he likes gladiator movies, he's like, yes, I do like gladiator movies. Not realizing that it's a riff on Airplane. Right. So he's getting mocked and he never gets a chance to kind of mock back. Mm -hmm. So he's just kind of this slutty bisexual punching bag. He's like a receptacle for all of the jokes and ideas that straight people have about queer sexuality and particularly about bisexuals and particularly about bisexual men. Yeah, like it's a running joke that they'll meet some new hot character who comes in for a guest arc. Shadowstar will lean in like, well, hello. And then someone has to get out their hook and pull him off screen. Right. Or like there's that moment where he like, they see, he, they haven't seen Tabby in a while and he just suddenly like dips her and kisses her. And it's like played for laughs and Richter's upset about it. That is even like after doing the Richter episode last week, I had forgotten because it had been a while since I've reread all of the late stage Simonson X Factor that Richter and Boom Boom had sort of a flirtation in the late New Mutants into X-Force moment. So it's like so much going on there and yet none of it is unpacked. Yeah, and also I think um, something that kind of adds as a final little kick in the gut to this, when you get to that retcon that Peter David brings in, where we see them get transported into the past so that Shadowstar can be cloned to make long shots. Right. And right. then they witness Dazzler giving birth to Shadowstar. Peter David reveals that because he's taken this inspiration from Jack Harkness, Shadowstar knew everything all along. Yeah, it's like almost a river song moment. Where yeah. It's like he's had to set up his own birth via time travel and all of that. And it's left very vague, but it's like, I know that certain things have to happen in the time space. Yeah, he's the one who has to mind wipe Dazzler and Longshot, which is... So that they don't know about him. Yeah. He's the one who has to transport himself to the future to become a gladiatorial slave. It's all to resolve a time paradox. And maybe this is where Spiral factors in in that story that got dropped. Like maybe that's where we're supposed to understand Spiral's connection to him somehow, but it's never been properly elucidated. And it also retroactively says weird things about the character. Yes, because suddenly he's not a himbo. He's not this clueless, naive alien. He's been scheming to create the time paradox the whole time. I choose to believe that he only gained that knowledge in the time between X-Force and X-Factor investigations. Like when he comes back and has, you know, grown more as a as an emotional being, he also has learned about his role in certain time paradoxical phenomena. I think that would fit, but the problem there is it makes him a lot more cognizant and it gives him a lot more kind of um, capability which means how he treated Richter throughout X-Factor investigation Becomes much worse. Yeah, because if he knew all the stuff, if he was this super smart time traveler setting all these dominoes in place, he knew what he then was doing Then surely he can understand yes. why Richter wasn't happy. Yeah. It's a little sinister in a way that I don't love. Yeah. And that's the last story for them in Peter David X-Factor because yeah. the book ends. Yes. And they're left in Mojoverse until they pop up again in Secret Empire, I want to say. Yeah completely at random and it's like how did we get here don't worry about it like we're back and it's just it's it's sinister in that it does this to his relationship with Richter it's sinister in that I will never be okay with how Dazzler was treated 
in the conception of Shatterstar. Yeah, that whole story is enormously misogynist to Dazzler. Yes. She's just a vessel. Also, on a shallow note, something I noticed in my rereads, Shatterstar gets wolfed a lot. I don't know if the audience is familiar with this trope. Explain what you mean, yeah. So, um... The wolf effect is this trope named after um, Star Trek The Next Generation, where their character there, Wolf the Klingon. The warrior guy. Yeah, he's the he's warrior the security guy. security officer. He's the security officer. He's incredible in battle. And so a lot of time, to show that a threat was real, they'd send in Wolf, and Wolf would get taken down. You'd knock him on his ass to show you. Honestly, the character who first got warfed hardest in the X-Men, I would say, is Ninja Psylocke in the 90s is relentlessly getting warfed to the point where she's actually a much more impressive fighter as Betsy in the 80s than in she is Outback, as Ninja yeah. Psylocke. Even before the Outback, like the first Psylocke issue where she joins the X-Men because she beats Sabretooth. Yeah. She outsmarts Sabretooth. In the 90s, Ninja Psylocke just fights Sabretooth and is nearly killed yeah. because it's a warf moment. And you're just kind of like... But you outsmarted him before you even knew how to do any martial arts. Right. You like, know, I, uh, I actually just reread that issue to make my Psylocke build for um, Danger oh, Rooms yeah, for, and Dragons. Oh, yeah, for Danger Rooms and Dragons. And just that panel where she's in the gym and she picks up that dumbbell and just hurls it at him. <laughs> it's so good. And it's like, <laughs> yes, yes, queen, I love you. Yeah, because she's not telekinetic, so she just got to pick it up and whip it across the room. She knows she doesn't stand a chance. Right. She's just leading him on a chase to get him away from the infirmary to save as many people as possible. And she's counting down the time like, I'm either going to die or the X-Men are going to arrive and rescue me, but I need to wind down the clock either way. And she fights like hell the entire time. And she wins. And then in the 90s, she gets warped hard, and that leads into the fucking Crimson Dawn. Ugh, yeah. But anyway, point is, they did it with her a lot in the 90s. They definitely do it with Shatterstar a lot in Peter David X Factor. I lost count of the amount of times in this run where a bad guy shows up in, like, the last three pages of the issue. Shatterstar screams, like, finally, a fight worthy of a warrior born. Goes running into battle whilst everyone just shouts, like, Shatterstar, no, this is dumb. And then he just gets taken down in one hit. Yeah. So it's like, I can't even enjoy the fighting of it. You know, I can't enjoy this kick-ass warrior because he's not kicking ass. What did you think of the Tim Seeley miniseries? I enjoyed it. I think it's a well-written story. The art is really nice. It's very dynamic. I just don't necessarily know if it gels with Shatterstar. Like the idea that he's the landlord now running a house for other displaced aliens? Yeah, I will say before we get into landlord discourse, I think the fact that he's running a house specifically for displaced aliens makes him less evil. Well, he's not exploiting Right, them. he's it's offering like effectively a, a halfway yeah. house. Right. I think that's kind of a good beat and a good story to pursue, but I would say... I don't really see Shatterstar taking the time to look up like zoning laws and keeping a house up to code and fixing a water boiler. You know, (laughs) he's a warrior. He wants to be out there fighting. Yeah, it's definitely a turn. I would say I think it's like the hottest he and Richter have ever looked. Oh, definitely. I think um, the compromise that uh, they make of the costume there where it's hard. Like it's his X Factor costume. With the street but with gloves. some of the 90s elements. Yeah, he puts on the chest guard and he brings back a restrained version of the head guards. Yeah. 
and it's practical but doesn't look insane. And Richter, similarly, it's like sort of a mix of the '90s look and his like punk '80s look. Yeah, he's got the leather vest, haircut. It's very, it's good, sexy. Yeah. But I also feel that they have that thing where they've apparently broken up because Shatterstar off panel. Yes, because Shatterstar isn't getting enough drama from the relationship. Richter says, the one thing you don't like about us is that we don't fight. And rereading it to me, it was like, okay, so he's retired and running a, being a landlord and running an apartment. And he's not happy because he and, well, also, that's like not true. Yeah. Their relationship and never has been. No. Like they've always fought, actually. So it's like a weird, it doesn't ring true. That doesn't ring true to me. No. I, I think it's an enjoyable mini. It I'm is. Glad yeah. Shatters, I'm glad Shatters, I was nice to see a queer male character get a solo mini. 100%. That's not that common. I was pleased about it. And I'm not super attached to Shatterstar, so I didn't like. Yeah, I think, ironically, my attachment to Shatterstar made it a little less enjoyable, but I still think it's right. a solid B plus story. Like, I don't hate it. By contrast to the Rob Liefeld Shatterstar oh, mini, which is. With the wild. five fingers of fate <laughs> and scorn with a K and two ads. The scorn and spiral and all of that weirdness. And Although I will say. We don't really need. Uh, we need to get into some of the unintentional comedy there, I think. Sure, go for because it. Because I think you will enjoy one of the panels I found where um, Cable is getting together X-Force to fight the scorn that's coming to destroy you. You sent me this and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah he's... Tell the listeners about it. Strife shows up as an antagonist to Cable. And obviously Strife is walking around with his shoulder pads, with his spikes, with his cape, giving the drama. And then you get to the obligatory Strife takes off his helmet moments. He takes it off. And it's Domino. It's Domino. Which, you know, Surprise. you and Anthony talked about the helmet being the ultimate wig reveal. Yes. This is the wig under the wig, in my opinion. Yeah, it's true. And so you get this brilliant panel with like a six foot six strife body with a Domino head on top. Right, because I guess she's wearing platforms inside the boots or something. They say it's solid holograph technology. Sure. But also disguises her face when she has the helmet on so you don't see the white skin. So that she doesn't have the unnatural yeah. skin tone right and cable's like staring at her and she's like what does this disturb you and cable just looks up at her it's like no i actually kind of like it <sighs> and it's just a this is the thing with rob liefeld like right. he just he can't stop making this wildly homoerotic stuff and you know what like i kind of love that like, yeah. there is something charming about how gay it always is yeah, it's this unintentional, very camp quality. Yeah. He brings camp. He doesn't mean to, which I think adds to the camp factor. Well, that's, that's sometimes that is the most camp. Yes. You know, is stuff that's not, something's almost less camp when you mean for it to be camp. Exactly. Oh, I did forget one of my favorite Shadowstar stories of the last, um, I feel like we might be skipping over a few. Dead Souls? Yes. He's so incredibly lovable and hysterical in Dead Souls. It's just a side Unbelievably lovable, yeah. Like how they go out to brunch to the spot he wants, even though he doesn't eat, but he feels very importantly about the aesthetic and the vibe of certain brunch spots. He wants like an ambiance. Yes. And then, you know, the team teleports out because magic takes them on a mission and presumably Shadowstar gets stuck with the check, even though he hasn't eaten. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then you see like you know a little cute domestic scene of Shadowstar cooking breakfast for Richter dressed only in an apron. I loved that bit. Yeah, and sure. I think isn't it Karma comes storming in to like ask Richter where magic is. Karma comes in to read Richter the riot act, and she's just like, "And can you tell Shadowstar to put on some clothes?" And Richter just looks up her and is like, "No, no, no." No, I cannot. No. I refuse. Which, love that for them. I love that for them also. Yeah, no, I quite enjoyed that also. I, I've said it many times on this pod. I think that New Mutants Dead Souls is a good read. Definitely. You know, it doesn't quite... the. Uh, oh, I did get a correction. I said that it ends in a cliffhanger. That does get picked up in Rose and Canny, sort of, but... I'd say Dead Souls does end on a cliffhanger because you don't get the yeah. end of the story in that book. No, you have to go read Uncanny, and I also think that like the way it sort of is resolved and Uncanny doesn't feel like... It feels like if he had more time, he would have done other yeah. things, you know? And I also um, want to give a big shout-out to uh, the Leia Williams stuff with Shadowstar and Mojo World. Yeah, I thought that was great. The return of the long hair made me sad, but, but it also, I get that it's classic. It gave him less clothes. Classic. It put him that in a part full I wrestler outfit, which I really That loved. part I adored, for sure. Like, the fact that now he has a logo that's the X made with crossed mm-hmm. swords is hysterical to me. So cute. I love and that too. I also feel like just reading those two issues or so, Leah Williams strikes me as someone who has a tremendous amount of ideas about Mojo World, which I'd be very interested to read. There are many reasons why it's sad that that book ended prematurely, but the thing that sort of most bummed me out was I thought that her initial story in Mojo World was so interesting. And it was clear in issue nine that a lot of stuff had to be sort of truncated into one issue. Yeah. And I would have loved to see more of that plot. And maybe maybe she'll return there in another book. I mean, maybe you know, she's planted seeds with Adam X and Spiral and other characters over there and maybe yeah. we'll revisit. Like I did jokingly speculate when we knew that a book called The Trial was coming. This was a great idea. Yeah. I loved this idea. Everyone else was saying like, it's a trial as in a legal trial. It's a trial as in a test. And I just felt like, Okay, but wouldn't it be so much fun if it was a trial of Mojo streaming? Like the free trial yeah. of Mojo Flix. It's the free trial of Mojo Flix, and we get to see an expansion of Leah Williams' ideas about that world. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like, in a lot of ways, after kind of the original long shot mini and the stuff there, Mojo World becomes a little toothless. Yeah, and it's very scary when it's introduced. Yeah. And I think that. The X Factor arc in Leah's Volume Four, I think, really brought that back. Yeah, it recontextualizes it, it to yeah. things that are and scary. modernized. Yeah, it. but to things that are scarier to us now about media. Right. In that it makes it about social media. Right. And the I thought it was very, very clever. Yeah, that data page of Shadowstar's messages we sending out to try and get help honestly mm-hmm. broke my heart as a beloved Shadowstar fan. Yeah. And so um, I loved that. <laughs> However brief it was, I would love to see her return to that character, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to see where she goes after the trial. I have hope that she'll end up on another project soon, and I, I'm interested to see whatever that is. Me too. I think now is a good time for us to jump into questions. Yes. If I don't read your question, I appreciate you for writing in anyway. As always, I just, um, as I said on Twitter, in this post-pandemic world, we're coming, I mean, we're not fully post, but we're coming out of it. My job has gotten a lot busier, and I don't know if I can edit, like, four hours of raw audio every week. So I'm trying 
to keep these episodes to about three hours if I could manage it, which is still a lot longer than almost any other podcast I bet you listen to. So I don't want to hear any jokes about it being a mini episode <laughs> or a short version or whatever, because I'm doing my best. Make it planet size, planet size Cerebro. I feel like I have now several times. And True. I need, to, I need to ratchet it back down just a little bit. Speaking of planets, though, uh, Krakoa Welcomes pointed out to me that 12 people have walked on the moon in real life, and that is a Zaladane. Oh, my God. The number 12 has just taken on new significance for me whenever I see it out in the world. Rob Plounce writes, Hey, Connor and Luke, this is the part where I sincerely express how I love the podcast, yada, yada. Shatterstar is probably my favorite mutant because speaking as an autistic lesbian, he is incredibly easy for me to identify with. There are so many Shatterstar moments that maybe go, wow, same. I cheered when I saw you'd be doing an episode on him. One recurring theme in Shatterstar's story is the loss of bodily autonomy. There's, of course, his origin story as a gladiatorial slave in Mojo World, showing up in X-Factor Investigations, Mind Controlled by Cortex, one of the only things PAD got right with Star's character, but I won't tangent into my problems with Star and X-Factor Investigations when the word biphobia can suffice. Being forced to get into gladiatorial slavery in the Shatterstar solo, getting hound-washed in the 2018 extermination event. Oh, we forgot about extermination. Oof. And most recently, yet again, Gladiator Trauma Hell streamed on Twitch in the current run of X Factor. Number two of the Shatterstar solo has a great internal monologue highlighting how everyone, the Cadre Alliance, Mojo, Cable, had objectified him as a weapon except for Richter, who saw him as a person. He's another in the long line of frequently mind-controlled X-Men, even though he's post-Claremont and a guy. I'm wondering what you guys' thoughts are on this facet of Shatterstar's character. Do you think this is ever an intentional theme for him or just the fact that he's an easy pick for brainwashing since he's a formidable physical opponent? Bonus, how should Star wear his hair now that he's been released from his thematically appropriate prison? Thanks a ton, Rob Plounce. <laughs> that is a really great question, but I think gets into a lot of the core of Shatterstar. Mm -hmm. um, I would say in terms of intentionality, under some writers, it probably isn't intentional. I think under Nicieza, he had something to say about Shatterstar's trauma, I think, and exploring that and exploring his emotional vulnerability. So I think at least in those stories, you can definitely see a causality and an intentionality. Mm -hmm. So I think it's there for him there. And obviously, I think in the uh, most recent X Factor stuff, it's there as an exploration of trauma and of him losing autonomy. Yeah. Because you get that moment where he's surrounded by those probes and the only thing he can say to try and get some help is one word in Krakoan, and it's no. Yeah. And that is a very powerful moment. And I like that we see in that issue that he does speak Krakoan, which means that he was on Krakoa. It emphasizes, like, the thing about Shatterstar is that, like, when he's introduced, he's not a mutant, right? He's, like, a Mojo World person. Yeah. And the retcon with Dazzler, like, he's, like, a mutant of the Mojo World. Yeah, the in the same way. That, is. Yeah. But not an X-Gene mutant. And then the retcon with Dazzler allows you to say maybe he has an X-Gene, right? And actually, the retcon with Dazzler and Shatterstar and Longshot allows you to now say retroactively perhaps Longshot has an X-Gene. It's a way of folding all those characters more formally into the X-Men. But I do think that part of Shatterstar's character is that he doesn't feel like a mutant in the way that the other characters are. He doesn't really see himself that way necessarily. And so... 
I liked that despite that, he has clearly become emphatically Krakoan. Yes. I liked that. As for why he gets mind controlled so frequently, I think that part of it is exactly what you identify, Rob, which is that I mean, he's the wharf. So making everybody fight him is appealing. Those characters often wind up mind controlled. Colossus is really the first one. There's that whole proletarian story in oh God, the 70s yeah. where he gets brainwashed by Arcade. Like that's something they like to do. It happens to Wolverine a lot. You know, he'll go into the berserker rage or the hand will brainwash him or whatever. I also think, though, that there is a femininity to Shatterstar that is interesting given how hyper-masculine the intent of his creation was. Yeah, he's um, he's physically intimidating and emotionally vulnerable. Yeah, but also just like the way that he is drawn, the way that he is viewed as like an object at times. He has a certain femininity to his characterization sometimes that I think is interesting. And I think like when you are a person who is at all feminine in X-Men story, you're likely to get mind controlled. <laughs> That's kind of like... <laughs> yeah, I think that is an interesting point because like the moment he comes on page, they're calling him pretty boy. Right, he's the pretty boy. He has the long flowing hair. They talk about his ass so much. like Yeah, and his body and... Feral calls him tons of buns. Right, like Iniciasa immediately gets that while Liefeld created this guy to be a cool guy... There is something very homoerotic about his whole existence. Yeah, and something very hurts as well. Yeah, and so I think that a lot of his story is those tropey things that get done to female X-Men characters being done to a male X-Men character, and I think that the gender play of Shatterstar is part of why that plot might be appealing. I mean, I can speak as someone who has gone into come um, sexual abuse that definitely feels like a touch point for the character with me. Yeah, I would say so. In the same way that it is for Ileana, like you can tell yeah. your childhood was not, people behaved inappropriately with you when you were a young person. Yes. You know, and both of them were sort of enslaved in a foreign land, right? Like there is that yeah. quality to it. There's also, I think, one good beat in the Peter David run is when Monet gets um, her body taken over by Pitt. Yes. And she talks about what a violation it is and how horrible it is for her, given her past of plates and penance. Mm -hmm. And the only one who stands up and says, because all of X Factor starts laughing about it and how funny it is. They think it's funny. Except Shatterstar. Right. He stands up and says, this is a gross violation of her body. Why are you laughing? And then afterwards, when Monet goes into a rage about this, Shatterstar <laughs> is the one person she spares. And I will say, to go back, it's actually another character, and this is appropriate, who this happens to all the time in the 80s is Longshot, who is also this sort of androgynous pretty boy character who Shatterstar is very connected to from the beginning. Liefeld has said more recently, and I don't know if this is true or not because Fabian didn't seem to think it was the case, but Liefeld has now said that he did initially pitch Shatterstar as Longshot's son from the future. So whatever the case may be, the characters have always been tied. He was from Longshot's yeah. future, regardless, and he has the same androgynous beauty of Longshot, but in this very muscular Liefeldian body. So Longshot, who was constantly getting brainwashed, mind-wiped, enslaved, he's inheriting that legacy to some extent, yeah. and also inherits the legacy of Peter David writing him as an asshole, which is uh, <laughs> something that unfortunately also happens to Longshot. I think that's what it is. And I think 
it is in part because he is post Claremont, because I think that Claremont didn't care that much about the male characters. I mean, as Annie Nascenti joked in her episode, you had to remind him to give them things to do. <laughs> so apart from Havoc, who I think this kind of thing does happen to a lot, in part because he's like masculinity in crisis all the time, right? Yeah, he's the younger brother. It's mostly the women who go through storylines like this because they were the characters Claremont was invested in more. I mean, like, there's, you know, there's yeah. like a kinky element to some of it too, obviously. But I think it's also that his obsession was with putting his heroes through these experiences and the heroes he cared about were the women, typically. Shatterstar is in that mold, but we are post Claremont. And so Nisiesa and other writers have taken an interest in him and it does feel protagonisty in a way. Like that scene where he freaks out at the club and explains himself to Richter, like Shatterstar is the protagonist of that scene. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of stuff like that that I think you don't get in Peter David and that you might not have gotten as much if he were a Claremont era character because the men often in Claremont served more as tools for the women's storyline. Yeah. I mean, you look at Colossus, for example, like that's that story is about Kitty. It's not about Colossus really ever. And then once Kitty leaves the stage of Colossus, it's about Ileana. Correct. Similarly, Havoc's arc throughout the Outback period is more about developing Madeline as a character than it is yeah. really about Havoc. Stuff like that. You know, Forge exists purely to push Storm's arc forward. You know, like that's sort of the, the thing there. So I think that it's built out of the story framework that Claremont created with the X-Men, but it is in a 90s period where the male characters suddenly were the main characters in a way that they hadn't been yeah. in Claremont. So I think that's what it is to some extent. Satan writes, Satan here, big fan of your guest this week. I have two questions about Shatterstar. First is a question for Luke. Should Shatterstar have pink hair? Why or why not? This is an inside joke and we are not doing this on my podcast. <laughs> Luke, what do you think? I think he should play with pink hair. I mean, I think he should get more in touch. So much of his parentage is centered around long shots. And Dazzler did have her pink hair moment in New Excalibur. Yeah. So. I think, you know, Shadowstar should get to experience what his mother is like. Get to kind of play in her world a little. Let him be a pop prince. I would love to see Shatterstar put out a pop disco album. I think that would be a lot of fun. Yes. And uh, I, for one, would stand. Second question for both of you. Shatterstar and Richter have been in an on-again, off-again relationship for years at this point. Richter has had other love interests over the years, particularly before coming out. But Shatterstar has not had much in the way of romance other than a few one-off characters. Do you think it would be healthy for Shatterstar, while on a break with Richter, to have a real romantic arc with another character? If so, do you think it should be with a man or a woman? Sincerely, Satan. So... I wouldn't mind that. I think my one thing is that Leah just did a sort of similar plot with Dokken in X Factor. And I think it might come across a little derivative because it's the same kind of like bisexual male stereotype who can't settle down and we're doing this thing where he falls for someone. And I feel like if you do that again, it might be like, we just did this. I would say though, like um, Aurora and Dokken, that's a very kind of romantic thing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like a romance, a real romance arc. But I think it would be fun to see maybe Shadowstar have a fun fling yes. with a female character. Sure. Like, 
I'm going to put this out there. Shatterstar and Risque. Oh, that would, would be, be fun. a fun long weekend. That would be very you know? fun as like a, as yeah, like a one-off thing that happens. Yeah. That then we can reference. And I definitely think it would be healthy for Shatterstar to explore other avenues because it would be the culmination of that conversation he had in a way that isn't stepping on Richter. Right. Because they've got their separation. Yeah, the issue with the male characters is there aren't, like, enough of them for him. Like, you think about who his options would be, and most of them are too young. Yeah. Or are Iceman, which, like, let's not, in my opinion. Or... Kristen Frost. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see Kristen Frost just fuck his way across Krakoa. They'd probably vibe. <laughs> but I don't know, like, Shatterstar and Northstar would have been fun. But again, like, Northstar is in this... Mar- I mean, now, Shatterstar ambling out of Kyle and Northstar's house with them one day with his hair tousled would be fun. Definitely. But again, they have to make that marriage a little more fun before that could happen. Yeah. So yeah, I think there aren't that many male options outside of creating new characters or outing more characters who haven't come out. But with the women, I think it would be fun to give him something with a character who doesn't have a connection to Richter. Like, I don't want him and Tabby hooking up. Like, that would be no, too much feels, drama. Yeah. Risque's a good pull. Yeah. Also, like, Risque and Richter aesthetically have a lot in common. I could see it, like, as it, like, Shatterstar has a type, right? Yeah. I'd also say maybe um, Shatterstar and Monet could be a very fun one-night stand. Because they kind of build up... I just don't think she would have the patience for that you know what i mean well not for a long-term thing but for one night i guess i don't like the one night stands that monet does have in x-factor investigations and i just feel like i don't want to go back to that well until monet has had an opportunity to have like an actual romantic relationship on the page which she hasn't had since gen x really i definitely get that you know I am all for Monet enjoying a dumb hunk every now and then. Not that he's actually dumb, but you get what I mean. He's a little dumb. He's a little dumb. He's a himbo. In a charming he falls way. into the himbo. He's very himbo. Yes. So yeah, that would those are my my thoughts on that. I do like the risque idea because then Jimmy could get jealous. It could be like a whole thing. Like risque could hook up with Shatterstar to make Warpath jealous. That would be fun. Oh, I really like that so much more now. Yeah, that would be fun. And like, yeah, I think it is kind of important that we maybe see Shatterstar with some women in a way that isn't just in the way that isn't just a joke if you want him to be like yeah. a bisexual character yeah but i do yeah. sort of feel like he should always come back around to richter yeah that's his anchor that's the end game but i think just slapping them back together we're in bliss would be a disservice to both characters 100 and i would rather see them work out their shit on the page Lijuan Wang writes, hugs from New Zealand. Connor, I love your podcast. My question is, how would you solve the Shatterstar origin story if you could? Peter David made a nonsensical mess of it. In X-Force, it seemed that Benjamin Russell and Shatterstar were two different people. Perhaps Benjamin Russell was a mutant who had the power to manifest some sort of vicarious reality, creating interdimensional warrior Shatterstar. But they merge at the end of that plot. At least that makes some degree of sense. Peter David's hasty one-shot in X-Factor makes no sense. Ack! So, you're right. We've talked about this a little bit. I actually think that this is also true of Magma. I think Shatterstar is more interesting with, like, I, I you know, Nova Roma's a disaster, but Magma is more interesting as the girl from Nova Roma than as Alison Crestmere, this British girl who got brainwashed. So similarly, I think Shatterstar is more interesting as an actual warrior from Mojo World's future. Definitely. So I get why Peter David was like, let's just ignore that because who knows what the hell Jeff was doing. I do think the way I would fix it is to say... 
I liked the idea of him being Rita and Longshot's child when all of the spiral stuff was happening and that Longshot had forgotten him just as he had forgotten Rita. That would be a way that you could time loop integrate it all together and Benjamin Russell could be like maybe Rita, maybe like Spiral sort of gets a hold of herself mentally and is like conscious enough of being Rita to like deliver the baby to an orphanage or something and then Mojo World conspires to bring him back and then Benjamin Russell becomes Shatterstar. But there are ways you could play with it. I do think at the end of the day, though, especially given the Dazzler and Longshot's child thing from 1992 that they brought back around, which is fine. I'm fine with it, apart from how Dazzler's treated in the story. I think it probably makes the most sense to just ignore it. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I would say, for starters, I think it was already fixed when Nisieza came back to it in the annual, because he kind of just said, it doesn't matter. But now he's a blend of Gavitra Seven and Benjamin Russell. Benjamin Russell has grounded him a little bit. Gavitra 7 keeps the alien side and he's just Shatterstar. It's sort of a way to download more Earth knowledge into Shatterstar's head. And soften him a little bit. Yeah, it's joking. just easy character development in a way that yeah. I don't always love. It's kind of like how when the teen X-Men go back to the past in the end of the Bendis era, Ugh. the Adulto 5 get those memories and it's like, so now on Krakoa, it's like Jean has always had a problem with collaborating with Magneto. Why is she okay with this? It's like, well, but teen Jean really grew to love Magneto. So yeah, you can just hand wave it. I find that a somewhat unsatisfying method of character development personally, but it certainly has a long history in comic books and that's life. I just don't think it's ever going to come up again. So I would say, don't worry about Benjamin. Russell. No. What I would say is how I would personally fix it. Keep him as Dazzler's son and all the kind of gaps and bits that don't make sense. Spiral did it. Yeah, I will say the easiest thing you can do with any Mojoverse storyline is decide that Spiral did it. Like she is truly the A Wizard did it of X-Men. It doesn't even need to be yes. a Mojo World storyline, but if it's already a Mojo World storyline, very, very easy. Spiral is a time traveler. She is a sorceress. She can reshape bodies and technology with the flick of a wrist. And she's got six wrists to flick. She's got a lot going on. So she's an easy way to fix it. We already know that she has this deep connection with Shatterstar that's never been explained. If you were going to streamline his backstory in some way, she's the character to do it with, absolutely. Yeah, and I think one thing that would be interesting there is effectively giving us Shatterstar with two mothers. Yeah. Dazzler and Spiral. And I think that would be so much fun because then you've got Spiral and, da uh, Spiral and Dazzler kind of clashing about it. Right. And then Shatterstar has a mutant mom and a mojo mom. Yeah, I like that a lot. To encompass both sides of it. Yeah, and then he can dip into both worlds. Yeah, and it's very easy to do because yeah. they're always getting their minds wiped in mojo world. And like, right. Spiral's crazy as a coyote to begin with. She can barely remember who she is. So, right. you know. And she'd love to fuck with Dazzler. Why, right. I, whenever Dazzler asks, like, what's the deal here? She just winks and is like, I'm his sister, I'm his mother, I'm his aunt, I'm his sister, I'm his mother. I'm everything. Yes. And nothing. I mean, I just love Spiral as a character, so I would love to see her take on more of a role. She's incredible. Generally. She's one of my faves. Yeah, and I think that thing of Shatterstar and his two moms would be storyline gold, in my opinion. 
John Taylor writes, two questions, one on Shatterstar, one on Blink. For Shatterstar, please explain Ben Russell and is it still a thing? I think we've covered this. It is not, I mean, it is still a thing, but you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, he sometimes answers the Ben. And for Blink, which Blink is Blink? Is AOA Blink still a thing? And if so, what reality is she in? We have been told that after Secret Wars, the alternate reality people are gone, generally, but... We know that AOA Blink was with the Exiles last we checked, so who knows? I think that the Blink in Sword is supposed to be the Blink from 616, who was in the original Phalanx Covenant into Gen X story, who then was in the DNA New Mutants run. Yeah, She has just been visually redesigned to look more like AOA Blink because that's the version of the character who's popular. And at the same time in Exiles, AOA Blink got a visual redesign to differentiate her. She got that kind of natural haircut. She went to a natural hair texture because the character is supposed to be black, which nobody had ever said on panel. So it was just one of those things that, yeah, they did in the Ahmed run, they did that. Yeah. So this one, I think, is definitely the 616 Blink who still has the hair that the AOA Blink used to have. But don't worry about it. It'll be explained at some point. I think the idea is it's whichever Blink you want, don't stress about it. You know what I mean? Because that character's had a really complicated publication history. And it's an opportunity to reset the character and just be like, it's Blink. You like Blink? Here she is. Don't worry too much about which Blink or the history or whatever else. Kyle Disk writes, Happy Pride, Connor and Luke. I'm a huge fan of your work. Luke, in particular, the focus you bring to characters with unusual hair colors. These inside jokes. <laughs> Character design is my question today. Since Shutterstar and Longshot are so frequently confused for each other, what kind of changes would you make to one or both of the designs to mitigate this problem? Yours Britannically, Kyle Disk. I actually think they're pretty visually distinct, provided that Shatterstar has like the emphatically red hair, which sometimes is a little too blonde. But otherwise, I think they're pretty visually different from one another. Yeah, they have their signature colors. Long shots always in black. Shatterstar tends towards white. Yeah. So I think that helps differentiate them. Longshot is always fully covered. He's got like a little V-neck, but that's it. And then Shatterstar currently is doing a tits out. Completely fully tits out. Yeah, which I'm into. Yes. Again, like haircut, please. But I'm loving the I'm loving the the costume. See, I was just gonna say, I think this is why Shadowstar needs the long hair. That's fair. His big Ariana Grande high pony is one of his visual signifiers. But part of the problem there is that they won't give Longshot his mullet anymore because that's his visual signifier. You know what I mean? True. Like, true. It's they more that they just that gave them of... both a normal haircut for a while. Yeah. And put them both on X-Factor Investigations, which, like, that's the other thing is they're usually not on a team together, so it's not really a problem, right? Yeah. I think they're mostly doing all right. Yeah, as long as I stick with the color palettes. This is the most I've ever liked the long hair, I will say, because with the nakedness of the costume, it's sort of an accent, right? I just, yeah. again, like, on a shallow sexualizing him level, it's just not my preference in guys, that's all. Like, you could be as femme as you want, I just want you to get a haircut. I mean, it's not a... <laughs> <laughs> it's not a it's not a mask for mask thing. I just don't like long hair. Lulu writes, hello, Connor and guests. Rebirth has been a very fun resource as I've gotten deeper into X-Men comics over the past few months, so I was excited to see you're doing an episode on Shatterstar, a character I've become weirdly fond of as a new reader. One of the things I find really interesting about him is the way he's evolved since his introduction in the early 90s, his sexuality, his relationship with Richter, his absolutely wild parentage, and even just understanding and experiencing emotions. How do you think this speaks to the collaborative and transformative nature of comics, especially in relation to queer characters who may not have been conceived or written as such when they were first introduced? Really enjoying the podcast. Keep up 
the good work and happy pride. Lulu, P.S. As an Oberlin student, the Toad episode made me laugh a lot. I'm so glad. <laughs> I, that is one of my favorite episodes. So this is kind of a good question to sort of wrap on to some extent because it, it, I think it gets at everything we've been talking about the whole time, which is that this is a character that was created in the very specific moment where the future image guys took over Marvel essentially and were like, this is the most extreme masculine superhero comic era ever. And it went so far around the bend that it just became gay. And later writers were like, what do we do with this character besides have him be kind of gay? I mean, like, that's that's what makes sense to do. So it's absolutely the unique thing about comics. Television can also be like this, but usually not to the same extent. I mean, here we have decades upon decades of storytelling yeah. in a way that you don't normally get on something like TV. And also he was created at a period where longer runs were starting to become a thing of the past. Right. Within the first 50 issues of X-Force, Shadowstar goes through three different writers who have all very different visions for it. Yes. As opposed to a 16-year run by Claremont, for instance. Or, exactly. Or, you know, a four-year run by Louise Simonson on X-Factor. You see how the hands are changing more often. We are fully out of the Claremont and Simonson and Nascenti period where you had these specific architects driving the X-Men franchise. And now people have... 10, 20, 30 issue runs. Shatterstar is a character, Richter is as well, but Shatterstar in particular is a character where you see, it's very easy to identify which writer on Shatterstar you're talking about. And I think that's interesting. Definitely. The queerest characters tend to be, like apart from the ones where the creator definitely intended it, like let's say Rachel Summers. Yes. The queerest characters, in my opinion, often tend to be the ones who change hands most because you get people who have lots of different takes and all of those contradictions. This is the thing about Iceman, right? Like so many different writers tried to out Iceman over the years that by the time Bendis did it, you had this long history of storylines where Bobby's kind of queer. What's going on here? What is this angst at the core of his identity? And that's because so many different writers, it wasn't like, let's do this one story one time. If Lobdell had done it in the early 90s and then no one else had touched it, I don't think that it would have had the same power. But Marjorie Lou tried to do it. Chuck Austin played with it. Like, it's around. It's something that circulates around the character. And Shatterstar is the same way. Yeah. I often kind of liken the shared storytelling aspect to kind of sculpture. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in a way with the Claremont run, you know, he takes Storm, he sculpts her, he fires it in the kiln and he sets kind of a varnish on it. And then she sets and how he defines her stays with her, which becomes a bit of a problem in the nineties. When no, no one, one else to wants her. to touch her. That is the Yeah, because they can't change it. Well, and they don't feel like they have a take on her. Whereas characters who were yeah. less developed, you could have a take on. Right. Shadowstar is still kind of wet clay. And you can kind of see these hands coming onto it, leaving some marks. Maybe every so often the marks aren't great. Liefeld only writes him for 14 issues, which right. is actually the same number of issues that Stan Lee wrote Bobby, now that I'm thinking about it. So the creator is not the primary engine with this character of the development. And the same is true with Iceman. He kind of leaves off the character with a shape and some handprints. And then Fabian Nicieza comes on and alters that shape and the shape alters and alters. And I think even as we have him now, He's still malleable. Yes. He still has potential, which I think is exciting as a character. 
there are still places you can take him, which I think is kind of a beauty of the X-Men line, because there are lots of characters like this, minor enough that they're not set in stone, but still important enough to fans that they keep coming back, and they're full of potential. I mean, I'll say... If he does stick around in Excalibur, whether as a recurring character or eventually as a team member or whatever, I mean, who knows? But if he does stick around, I am very excited at the prospect of Shatterstar in Otherworld. The idea of Shatterstar getting the opportunity to be the honorable warrior he has always wanted to be without it being in the context of Mojo's blood sport. Yeah. The idea of him getting to like be a knight is very appealing. And getting to flex his muscles and show off. And yeah, he's be, he could be like the barbarian of the D&D party that they've set up. You know what I mean? And yes. I think that that would be really fun. I think that as Richter embraces his mage side, it would be an even sexier, it would be a sexy fantasy couple is all I'm saying. Whether they're together or friends who are fucking or whatever it's going to be. Because I'm all for them bouncing around and being weird and figuring out how they feel about each other. Like I, That's the stuff with them that I like best. Rather than like, I mean, I love the like, I'm in an apron and it's cute and domestic and dead souls. That moment is cute. But for me, what's most interesting with these characters is when they are not sure where they stand with each other or when their love is so important, but like it's not quite working. So I'm just interested to see where it all goes. But I'm very interested to see Shatterstar given the opportunity to be a warrior, like a fantasy warrior, but liberated from the expectations of Mojo World. I think that could be really cool. So yeah. I'm hopeful that we'll see some of that. I think it could be neat. Especially because I think he'd have so much fun sword fighting with Betsy. They would right. get on, like, a house on fire. I, yeah, I think he and Betsy would like, lo- I can't remember if they've ever really interacted, but I feel like they are very much simpatico characters. Yeah. Like, I think the moment Betsy kind of drops into a fighting stance and manifests a sword and shield... He's going to be, like, Shatterstar is going to stand. Yeah. He is going to stand, Betsy. He is. He's probably going to be hot for Betsy, which could be a funny point of tension <laughs> between him and Richter. That would be fun, actually. And then, like, yeah. not that they should go there. They should not go there. No. But the idea that he thinks Betsy is hot could be fun. And then you get a little moment of Rachel and Richter just like, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. No, 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 no. Last question. Krakoa Welcomes asks, what would be Shatterstar's OnlyFans handle? Ooh. Okay, I'm going to go to a very dirty place here. Do it. And uh, bring up one of his favorite catchphrases from the 90s. Warrior Bread. Ah. Nuff said. Yes. Well, Luke, is there anything else you'd like to say before we start to wrap? I have um, Housewives of Krakoa lines, if we want to play that. Hit me. Okay, give me a moment. While we're at it, listener Turtle Power suggested a Real House of Krakoa tagline for North Star that made me laugh out loud, which was, I'm fast, I'm furious, and your man's by curious. <laughs> and I absolutely adore that. Oh, love that. But yeah, so what what were your what are your Shatterstar taglines? So first I would say I think Shatterstar would probably end up on the Krakoa and Vanderpump rule. Yeah, he would not be a housewife. He would be on the no. spinoff. He would be the sexy, unique lagoon worker. Would love a sexy, unique lagoon show. Yes. But um, just give me a moment to get into character for the first one. I have a couple. Okay, hit me, hit me, hit me. Hey, I'm Gabby. Hey. Like mother, like son. Yes. A star is born? Well, it's a little more complicated. <laughs> I am a star and the audience loves me. 
because Shadowstar canonically loves musical theater. It's true. He's a fan of Singing in the Rain. I think he digs Chicago. It's violence and musical all in one. He would like Chicago. Some of my best friends are Starfuckers. That's cute. And then my last one, which I apologize for. Richter may control the earth, but I'm the one who can make the bedrock. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug your new project and anything else you might want to plug? Thank you kindly. I'm online generally at all places under my handle Buxnalis because I decided to have a consolidated <laughs> username, but then decided to they then make decided it to make your... it impossible to spell. What explain yes. to us what that means? It's an Icelandic term that um, means without pants. Because a lot of time when I'm surfing on the internet, I will not be wearing trousers because I want to be comfortable. So I'm on Twitter at at B-U-X-N-A-L-A-U-S 85, where you can find my takes on X-Men and um, mostly just a lot of retweets of smarter people. (laughs) You're plenty smart. Stop. Oh, thank you. And then you can also find me at at Danger Rooms, all one word which is a project I've taken up just to kind of keep me sane during the pandemic, where I take various X-Men characters and try to imagine what they would be like in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. It's partially inspired by uh, Teeny Howard's run on Excalibur because those characters get their D&D outfits Mm -hmm. when they go into Otherworld. And I would say it's partially inspired by seeing your success with Cerebro and how much fun you've been having with that. I have been having fun. It's getting a little stressful because suddenly, like, I have... There's like fans that I have to pay attention to and I get nervous, <laughs> but I love you guys. I love that. I love, I'm very grateful for everything that this podcast has brought into my life so far. And uh, I hope that your new project brings that for you. I think it'd be fun to run a game. Oh yeah. I'm definitely already considering that. Well, dibs on Betsy, obviously. <laughs> Not Emma? Well, you haven't built Emma yet. I'd have to see which one looks more fun to play. Because the idea I have in my head so far is maybe a campaign where I take a big X-Men event, turn it into an adventure, and then let people play whichever X-Men character they want, and I just make a build for them. Mm -hmm. So if you came in saying, hey, I want to be Emma Frost in the Dark Phoenix saga, I'll make you a build for playing as Emma on the blue area of the moon, because I think that could be fun. Well, that would be a weird place for Emma to be (laughs) after the beginning of that arc. (laughs) But yeah, no, so we'll we'll talk. I think it would be fun, and I I love what you're doing over there. And you put a lot of love into it. And I know that you love tabletop role-playing games and all of that. So it feels very lived in, both with your knowledge of the X-Men and your thoughtful approach to building the characters. So I definitely recommend that. Danger Rooms, all one word, on Twitter. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. You can also find a link there to the Cerebro fan discord please join the conversation don't bring any bad vibes you can also find a link to the t public merch store featuring an amazing original zala design by valentine m smith with more merch to come in the future you can support cerebro on patreon at patreon.com slash cerebro cast the five dollar house of zaladane tier gets two bonus episodes each month by the time you're listening to this, the first June bonus will be out with Anthony Oliveira. I had a lot of fun chatting with him. We watched Pride of the X-Men. Oh, <laughs> I cannot wait. 
I cannot wait to hear you two react to Pride of the X-Men, Emma. So for uh, instant access to the bonus episodes, which also includes a Hellfire Gala lookbook breakdown with Josh Cornillon, a full breakdown of all 12 appearances of Zaladane, and an Ask Me Anything I did for the first one, you can pop over to Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks again for your patience this Pride Month as I have been slightly behind schedule because I'm in Los Angeles at an Airbnb and don't have my regular setup. The final Pride Month episode will feature comics creator Stephanie Williams, who will be here to talk with me about Roxy Washington, the young X-Man bling, exclamation point. I am excited about this because it's another one of that generation of students that I don't know a ton about and so I've been digging into her publication history and I am excited to dig in with Steph who is brilliant so tune in for that until next time everybody thanks for listening and um, bye bye X-Men X-Men in the 21st century evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world only hope is X-Men.